if you love Wu Tang's, was it Enter the Thirty Eight Chambers? Is that correct? I think it's thirty three. Oh, I can't remember <laughs> some number. <laughs> oh man! Well, we've got one for our soul friends to point out next time. But if you like that album and you love all the old school samurai sampling, this is basically <laughs> Wu Tang album part two. But I think it's better than the thirty three and a third chambers album. <laughs> You know, it's funny. We were both wrong. <laughs> Is it 39? No. Keep guessing. 36. It's 36. <laughs> <laughs> You are now listening to the Press Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Ghost 81 discuss music, movies, gaming, and culture, as well as the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. This month, we're fulfilling the prophecy by covering the final game in one of our favorite franchises with Bioshock Infinite. We've been fans of the series to this point, but will Infinite tear its way into our hearts? Stay tuned to find out. We'll also be taking a look at some horror movies we've recently watched, as well as some sophomore albums that we think are the artist's best works. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit PressPlaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at RFGPlaycast, and Rich is at TheSingleBanana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast.
Check, check. Hello, hello. Check, check. Check. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you gotta take it easy with those uh, snot inhales. Dude, you're catching me like early out. in the morning. <laughs> That's what you're gonna get in the morning. Plus, I'm kind of just getting <clears throat> over a cold, so... Well, I hope you're feeling better. Oh, thanks. Um, and then also, I picked the wrong day to run out of fucking coffee. Oh, how do you run out <sighs> of coffee, man? That's, I know. That's horrendous. I know. I didn't get the wife alert that we were out of coffee. And <laughs> of course, she's out of town. So that's why I'm able to uh, have a free morning to record bright and early, 7 a.m. East Coast time. You know about East Coast time now, don't you, Sean? I do. I'm back in the Eastern Standard Time Zone again, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I moved. I no longer live in Austin, Texas. This is my first time recording from the very beautiful state of North Carolina. Isn't it wild how things turn out? Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) When we started this show, I was living in New Jersey. It's just funny to look back and think how long we've been doing this and just the way life goes. And my wife and I had a great time living in Austin. We were there for seven and a half years and we weren't planning to move out of there for a while. My wife, if she had her way, we would move back to New Jersey, but that's just, it's not something that I want to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the compromise after you know, talking to you a little bit and talking to other people. And my wife has lived in South Carolina, so she knows the area a little bit. Right. Um, back in her uh, younger days, she lived in South Carolina and had a job in North Carolina. So oh, wow. knows the area pretty well. So through that history and talking to you, I thought, I want to see it, you know? So I think I've talked in the previous show about how we went to the coast first and decided that wasn't a place we would want to live, but it was an awesome place to visit. Uh, So then we checked out Raleigh and now we live in the Raleigh area and I really like it. And we actually live close to what is, according to you, the only good video game store in the triangle, which... (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like the only video game store <laughs> in the triangle. But uh, I, I hear there's another one because um, I went to the, quote, best video game store in the triangle a few months ago. And okay. wow, the only reason it is the best video game store in the triangle is because it's the only one. It was pretty <laughs> rough. They had one N64 game and one Game Boy game. And I was like, Wow. Like, for a city as big as Raleigh, you guys got to be doing better than this. Yeah, that's interesting, because when I went there with my wife, when I showed you, I sent you a picture, we made it to the promised land. (laughs) 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 And I actually ended up getting a PS4 game, uh, Omega Quintet, it's called. It's some kind of anime RPG-ish looking thing, and I... I again, I did that thing where I'm like, how much does this go for on Amazon and eBay? And it was actually cheaper in the store, so I grabbed it. So cool. The only thing I got there was a Xbox 360 controller rechargeable battery. That's cool. Yeah, I had to get it for my uh, new controller that I got for Christmas, the uh, C3PO controller. Nice. Very cool. Well, I'm sure we'll get more into that in scores. But as far as the big move goes, it's been awesome. And this is our 
second time relocating across country in our lives, which is, hey, I mean, like my wife and I, I especially am now really starting to regret that we don't have children. So to not have roots, at least we can make the best of that in a way where we can see different parts of the country and experience life living in different parts of the country. So I think that's pretty neat. We went from a house, you, well, you were at our house in Austin. Yeah. That house was a 1970s construction where there were not a lot of updates made to it. So it was a it was an old house. The electric work was really shoddy. Uh, the house was pretty moldy. Ventilation wasn't great. And the house we just rented here is a 1990s construction, but the house was completely redone. Everything in here is brand new. So that's cool. Quality of life stuff that comes with that is quite nice. And as I, I said, we're putting finishing touches on our move and moving in. We're almost done. I mean, we basically are done. But I did mention before we started recording that I'm in a dark room <laughs> using only <laughs> natural light as the sun rises uh, because I don't have a lamp yet for my music and podcast studio room. So this is nice. Nice. But yeah, you and I now are only about an hour and a half apart. So we're going to have yeah. to do some some live shows and record together. Uh, Absolutely. More often definitely be some live recordings in the future and maybe some co-op play at some point as well. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So speaking of updates, did the bidet make the move? No, the bidet didn't make the move because it was just, <laughs> I uninstalled it and threw it out just because it felt, okay. it felt gross to take something like that. It wasn't, you know, to have to clean it and just put it with all my other stuff felt gross and weird. So uh, I tossed it and bought a brand new one and it was installed nice. on day one. <laughs> like that there was you my go. top priority. <laughs> <laughs> well, I myself have now installed two bidets. Awesome. Because my daughter, who's 14, that was the only thing that she wanted for Christmas. <laughs> it was top of her list. Amazing. How did she I, I know, hear right? about it? So my coworker and wife are good friends and my coworker is sort of like the godmother of my daughter, just someone to kind of look out for her and to help her when maybe she has a question or wants to come to someone that's not her parents, you know, right. just kind of nice to have someone like that. So anyway, she went with her to some friends of my coworker's house uh, that she was dog sitting for. And they ended up spending the night there with my wife, and they had a bidet. And so that's where she first had the experience. And after that, it was <laughs> just like, I have to have one. I have to have one. So I kept screwing with her, you know, before Christmas. is like, I'm not buying a bidet. I'm not doing all that. I'm not installing that. So <laughs> I ended up buying two because I got one for my wife as well. And yeah, man. I probably had those things installed like 10 minutes each. Oh, it's very easy. Very yeah. easy to do. So, uh, you know, highly recommend it. They're not expensive. I think you can get one for 35, 40 bucks. Yep. So, uh, well, I'm in the uh, bidet world now, man. <laughs> very cool, man. I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm there. No, it's awesome. It's a game change, and we've talked about it before. But, yeah, that was uh, that was my first install, and 
then I prioritized the, we call it a, a media room, which is basically, you know, my video game room. You saw it again. You saw yep. the version of it in Austin with the, uh, the futon and the projector, the sound system, the games, and now the movie collection that I started, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But I actually didn't put home theater completion in the notes here. So I'm wondering, what is the relevance of that to you? Well, so the thing that my kids also wanted for Christmas this year was to turn our upstairs, which is their old playroom, into a theater. And so we have been working on that and finally got that done. My parents bought us a 65-inch TV for Christmas. Of course, it was a TCL because, as, as you know, I mean, we've said nothing but good things about those TVs on our show. And so this was a gift that my parents got to our entire family for Christmas and uh, I installed that on the wall, and uh, we bought a lot of uh, really awesome furniture, some of it which converts into sleepers, which is you know nice when we have additional company. But uh, yeah, it's looking really awesome. We painted it that theater red, and it took five coats of paint. Wow. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was probably the worst part of it. But uh, yeah, I've got all the furniture installed. Uh, Got a surround sound, and uh, I've been spending about every night in the movie room watching at least one film. So uh, it's been pretty awesome. That is amazing. I can't wait to talk movies in a little bit. Ooh, that's going to be fun, yeah. All right. Well, did we have any feedback or mistakes that our asshole friends pointed out from any <laughs> previous episodes? Or anything you caught when listening back to it? I know while recording, we were pronouncing one of the characters' name wrong yes. about half the time. And I don't think anybody caught it. But if anybody was like a hardcore fan of this game, <laughs> it might have rankled them a little. But we decided... We did it too many times to worry about it and just kind of yeah. left it. I was going to try to replace it, but it would have just sounded funny everywhere. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to leave that alone. Yeah. But yeah, we did pronounce one of the characters' names wrong. Uh, is it uh, Yuki? Yeah, Yuki right? or Yuri. And I, even now, yeah, whichever I one, it which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's move on into our concert cast. What do you think? Yeah, this will be good. Well, first of all, did you go to any shows? Because I don't have any shows to no. talk about. Okay, so nothing this time for shows. But being in a new city, you and I have looked at, and there may be some traction on that in the future. So, Oh, yeah. You got to go to the cradle, man. I got to take you there. It's legendary. Yeah, absolutely. Deny me, deny me, never been 
just roll into our topic then so you and i couldn't remember if we've done this before the topic is sophomore albums so we decided to do best sophomore albums but we upped the ante a little bit to make it a little spicy where we are arguing that bands where their sophomore album is their best album Mm -hmm. which is uh it's an opportunity for hot takes because i know a few that i could say by saying that this album is their best album could be a bit of a controversial opinion. Well, let's start off with an example, should we, Sean? There's one album that you and I both talked about that's going to be a really spicy take. <laughs> I didn't put it on my list for that reason. I thought, you know, we'd, you know we won't use that album. But uh, Weezer's Pinkerton, right? Yeah, so... The only thing that's spicy about this take is that a lot of people think the Blue Album is better. And as time goes on with Weezer's career, it goes back and forth between Pinkerton and the Blue Album. And there are defenders of everything that came after. There's some of it that I like. But in general, Weezer to me is only those first two albums. Agreed. I don't want to stay on this for too long, but I do want to take this opportunity to say something that... I have no proof of, and you're just going to have to take my word for it, but there's this thing about Pinkerton. The narrative on Pinkerton is that Weezer made the Blue Album. They were very successful with the hit singles off of that album, the music video for Buddy Holly. Everybody was happy. It was a great power pop album, big success. And then they make Pinkerton, and everybody hates it, and Rivers goes into a depression and blah, 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 blah. I guess to a certain extent that may be true, but I'm going to tell you something. The first time I heard Pinkerton, I asked my uncle to buy it for me for my birthday on CD, which he did. I remember this very clearly. I asked him to buy me Weezer's Pinkerton and the BC Boys Check Your Head on CD. So he (laughs) gave me these two CDs for my birthday. And yes, I just said two CDs if you wanted two CDs nuts. (laughs) I can't leave that one. Just hang in there, okay? So um, No pun intended, hang in there. (laughs) So anyway, I distinctly remember getting those albums. And I was at my grandmother's house spinning Pinkerton and I was blown away by it. I loved it from the first track, first time I heard Tired of Sex, first time I listened to the whole album through. I was obsessed with that album. I always have been. I think it's not only their best album, but like it might be their only good album. 
There's your hot take. (laughs) (laughs) I do love the Pinkerton album. I I love the Blue album. You know, I can listen to it all the way through, song for song, except I do skip the Sweater song, which I think is completely annoying. I just don't understand the love (laughs) for that song at all. But um, I actually saw Weezer on the Pinkerton tour in Raleigh, where you're living now, at a place called The Ritz, a band called Nerf Herder, who I'm sure you know, opened up for them. And just to go with what you were saying earlier about Weezer, about sort of the um, depression that was going on with the lead singer, there was actually rumors of some band infighting that was going on at the time, too. And uh, my friend Anasa and I, we went to the show, and you could see across the stage that there was a lot of tension between the guitar player and the lead singer of Weezer at that time. So there was definitely something going on. I can wholeheartedly confirm that because it was uh, a great show. The music was fantastic, but there was something really, really strange going on with the band. That's interesting. They're definitely a band I wish I could have caught live in their heyday, so I'm a little bit jealous. But It was awesome, man. Yeah, I believe (laughs) it. It's a great show. Nerf Herder, too. It's funny, I actually spun their first album uh, recently, and it it kind of holds up. What I always yeah. disliked about that band is it always seemed like they didn't put any effort into their lyrics. Like Some of the mm-hmm. songs on that first album sound like they were making up the lyrics on the spot. Like They're really dumb and don't have any thought put into them, especially like the later tracks on the album. It's almost like they ran out of time to write the songs and just <laughs> started making up stupid for the lyrics but uh there are some really strong tracks on that first album by nerf herder if you like weezer and you haven't heard them i would recommend that to the listeners here yeah well they don't put a lot of effort into their shows either i can confirm that oh they weren't good (laughs) it wasn't memorable let's just put it that way so uh yeah i usually you know like opening bands and you know want to listen to something new but it wasn't the greatest of great, but uh, yeah, Weezer was on point. They were fantastic. All right. Uh, So should we get into our top five sophomore albums that are better than any albums that the band has ever created? Sean. Yes, we should. And I want to preface this with, this is probably going to be my most mainstream list that I've ever done. I tried to find some deep cuts. You know, I always like to recommend stuff that nobody's ever heard before. But on this list, honestly, you're going to hear me talk about a lot of stuff I've talked about before. And you're going to hear a lot of stuff that is just going to confirm your biases because it's very (laughs) like mainstream picks. And I even asked other people. I asked my friend Andre for some help and he he gave me some really great answers, but they were all stuff that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I remember that. Yep. You're right. You're right. You're right. Like just (laughs) confirming what everybody already knows. So this this should be interesting, but I just wanted to preface that um, with my thoughts there. Yeah. And if you really want to piss people off, you got to have things they know about, right? Yeah, true. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Sean, let's start with you. What's your number five? Um, I'll go with Oasis. This is uh, definitely a, <laughs> an obvious one. Their second album, What's the Story, Morning Glory?, um, nice yeah it's a massive hit it has wonderwall on it it has uh, champagne supernova a couple other singles and i would say definitely maybe their first album is also very great it is 
a lot of these are going to be the same story. Like they make one album that's like really good. And then the second album is like fulfilling the promise of the first album. And it's just like a masterpiece. So with Oasis, like, again, they're kind of like a Weezer type band. And a few of these on my list are where it's like really great material in the beginning of their career and then just fell off, you know, like, does anybody listen to Oasis's music after What's the Story, Morning Glory? Like, I've heard some of it, but I don't think that's what people go to when they want to hear yeah. that band. So, Well, they hate each other, right? The two brothers are still at odds. Yeah, it's true. Some of their solo stuff after the band is pretty good. I've listened to both of their albums, and they're not bad, but... Yeah, I wonder how much of that. I. It's funny, YouTube recommends this one guy, and I can't remember his name, but it's an Oasis YouTube channel, and he does these <laughs> deep dives on, like, really cool. Like, I was watching a video the other day, shows where they fought with the crowd, and he had, like, actual footage and stuff like that. I don't know, man. And I also downloaded recently this... Um, documentary about oasis that i'm looking forward to watching they're just a fascinating band i wonder how much of their feud was just a shtick just an act but i don't know man they seem like crazy idiots like <laughs> yeah i mean, <laughs> you know if, it, I mean? if it's a shtick they're still doing it they've been doing it for a long time <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> all right man great pick so for my number five i'm going with an artist who might be the most polarizing artist out there. And if I had to guess, I would say you probably do not like this guy. And that is Frank Zappa. And uh, the album I picked was Hot Rats. Okay. So Zappa put out several albums before this one. And it could be in contention that this is not a sophomore album of Frank Zappa, but I would argue that because the earlier albums he put out, he put out with the band, the mothers of invention, you know, he was a part of that band before he started doing solo stuff. And so his first album was called lumpy gravy. And then the second one that he put out individually was called hot rats. Have you heard this album, Sean? No, I've never really listened to Frank Zappa. Uh, I know my dad was kind of into him. Uh, I don't know if I would recognize his music if I heard it, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of takes a certain person to really like Frank Zappa. It's, you know, kind of very out there stuff. Yeah. But Hot Rats is more of a like jazz influenced album. It's really, really cool. I think you would really dig it. And it's really the only album by Zappa's that I own and like. I've tried other albums before and I just cannot get into Zappa. But uh, have you ever listened to any Captain Beefheart? Uh, Safe as Milk, I believe, is their biggest album. I don't know if you've heard that one before. Wait, is Ca Captain Beefheart is the Trout Mask replica band, yes. right? Yes, uh, that's yeah. correct. So, all right, I'll try not to be too negative on this, <laughs> but you know, like Trout Mask replica is one of those meme albums that yes. the, the internet like 
oh, it's one of the great, it's a masterpiece. It's the greatest thing. And it's like, no, it's unlistenable trash. Like, I don't care if I don't care for it either. No. <laughs> like, I don't care if they're doing seven different things and it's a quadrilateral, you know, whatever. It just sounds like ass. <laughs> so, anyway, that's my two cents on that album, but go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, Beefheart's like Zappa. Like, I love Safe as Milk, but it's the only album I like by them. So, take that for what it is i would say check that one out too but hot rats is just a very kind of soulful jazzy album it's really really cool man and um yeah it kind of changes your perspective of how you think of music by frank zappa in my opinion i think it's by far his best cool all right well i'll go into my number four another obvious i think a very obvious choice (laughs) discovery by daft punk So their first album, Homework, is very good, but it's kind of a compilation. It's not a compilation album, but it's them kind of learning what they're doing kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I've been on a kind of a Daft Punk rabbit hole lately, just watching YouTube videos about them and stuff. And their their history is kind of fascinating. Did you know, I think we're going to talk about this movie in a little bit, but the Daft Punk dudes met. I don't know how much this is like apocryphal and again like how much of this is real, but they met and they bonded over their love of the movie Phantom of the Paradise. And they saw it like 17 (laughs) times together. And that's kind of the Phantom's like helmet is what inspired the robot helmets, apparently. Oh, wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. (laughs) Guess what movie posters hanging up in the new movie room? Oh, that's awesome. You got to send me a picture of that. I need. I definitely will. I've got that. (laughs) And, uh, uh, I've got an original Blue Velvet movie poster as well by David Lynch. So yeah, very cool. Two. But getting back to Daft Punk. So sorry. anyway, homework like they didn't have quite the mystique yet. Like it's just a really good house album with a lot of good beats on it, and it has Defunk, it has Around the World. But then Discovery comes out, and I think it's such a perfect album. And like kind of like Paul's Boutique, it's like a really sample rich album. That has Mm -hmm. a lot of, it's very rewarding to go through it and analyze what the parts of the song are being put together. And there's a lot of really cool YouTube videos on that as well. It's just a really good album start to finish. All the songs merge into each other. It starts off with one more time. I've definitely chosen this album for some kind of other topic because I feel like I'm repeating myself here. But (laughs) yeah, Daft Punk Discovery, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite albums of all time and face to face is one of my favorite songs of all time i wouldn't say that's an obvious pick man you wouldn't say it's an obvious pick no i know a lot of people love random access memories their final album Oh, sure sure and that one is great too and i i'm actually a defender of human after all i think that album is really good a lot of people hate it you know what my favorite album by them is what the Tron, the Tron soundtrack, soundtrack. yeah. yeah. I, I have it on vinyl. I love it, man. It's beautiful. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, that that was good too. But yeah, for me, it's Discovery, like far and away their best album. I don't think I've ever really sat down and listened to a lot of Daft Punk. I know some of their later stuff. And my roommate in college, my senior year, he had, I don't know if it was the first or second album. It was the one that was black with the orange lettering. I know there's one that's black and one that's gray, right? Yeah, the black one is homework. The gray one is human after all. Okay. So I heard some from him, but I never really got into it until kind of late in the game, which is 
kind of odd because I was really into electronic music at the time. Yeah, I would recommend if you haven't listened to Discovery front to back in a long time, a good way to experience it is to watch their movie Interstellar 5555, which is a anime. It's basically like, you know, um, what is it? The Dark Side of Oz, where you just watch (laughs) (laughs) Wizard of Oz with Pink Floyd playing over it. So this is an anime with no, there's no original sound in the anime. It's just... Daft Punk's album Discovery is the is the sound of it and you're just watching the story unfold while the album is playing. It is very like coherent and tells a good story and it's it's awesome. I need it on Blu-ray but there's not like a good version of it from what I understand, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, cool. I'll have to check that out too. All right, man. Well, speaking of obvious picks, my number 4 is a band that is one of you and I's favorites. And that is the Pixies with Doolittle. Nice. Yeah, I think that this is their best album by far. I do love Surfer Rosa, which was their first. But there's just something about Doolittle. I can't put my finger on why it's so great. You know, the songs aren't cohesive because they're different speeds, different lyricists. But somehow... The album just all comes together in this very, very strange way. I just I can't explain it. You know, it is the one Pixies album that I can listen to front and back any day of the week, any time of the day. It's just a perfect album, in my opinion. And uh, I had to put it on the list. Yeah, I agree. This one almost made my list. Again, <laughs> pretty obvious choice. Some people would say Surfer Rosa, and I love Surfer Rosa as being their best album, but I agree, Doolittle is just their best. So, Yeah, I love Surfer Rosa too, but uh, anyone who says Trump de la Monde is their best, you just need to <laughs> kick them out of your house. I like that album a lot because it was the, too. the first I ever heard of them um, uh-huh. because I was in columbia house or some other cd club and that was the only pixies album they had available so i got that one even though that was it's not their strongest album it definitely has their like flavor of music on it and i I really liked it and i still do yeah it's got a few good tracks on it that i really love but cohesively i think Doolittle is their top album sweet all right sean you're number three okay i'll go with Another one that I I know we've talked about before. This may be on your list, but I know that you don't prefer this album, maybe. But it's Ooh. Fugazi. <laughs> um, I go back and forth between what is Fugazi's best album, and they have such a strong discography. Mm-hmm. They're one of those bands that like any day of the week, your favorite album could be a different one. But usually for me, it's between Red Medicine and Repeater. But again, the first album I hear by a band tends to stick with me. I just mentioned that that happened with the Pixies. It happened with Slater Kinney. Same thing. I like the Hot Rock, which is an odd choice for favorite Slater Kinney album. But it was the first one I heard, and it really stuck to me. With Fugazi, same thing. I was in middle school or junior high, some people call it. So sixth grade. I traded tapes with somebody. I don't know what I gave up, but somebody gave me a cassette copy of Repeater and it blew me away, got me into the band and my friends were always really into them. You know, it's a shame they broke up so long ago, but they're one of those bands that 
should not get back together because they're, (laughs) (laughs) you know, their body of work is perfect. And I think, although I would have loved to have caught them live because they're known for legendary live performances, I hope they don't ever get back together. And that's, that's a hot take. But yeah, Yeah. Repeater to me is their best album and a great starting point if you've never heard the band Fugazi. Yeah, I'm a 13 songs guy. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I really love their original. And again, it's because it's the first one I ever heard. It was the first one that my wife put on a mixtape. So yeah, it says a lot about, you know, listening habits because, you know, you get stuff stuck in your head and you're just like, oh yeah, that's my favorite. And it's hard to go out and listen to other albums. I don't think I've ever really sat down and listened to Red Medicine. So uh, that's one I definitely need to uh, check out a little more. Yeah, absolutely. That one's rad. All right, my number three. I'm going with a rap album this time. And this album, I think, is probably, if not the, one of the most important rap albums ever released. And that's Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions. Their first album was called Yo Bum Rush the Show. Yeah. And uh, it's good, but uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions elevated public enemy to another level it's such a cool album the beats and sounds are so awesome it's so highly charged politically and it says all the right things politically without being overly abrasive it's such a great message and it's good when a band can put something out there that means something but then also just sounds incredible, you know? Yeah, I agree. And the full title of the album, I think kind of goes to your point. It's It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Yep. Yeah, so it's funny. This was on my honorable mentions. Like their first three albums, like Fear of a Black Planet came after this one. That's also great. Mm-hmm. They really had a good string of albums when they started. But yeah, this one is awesome. Like you said, great beats. You got the back and forth with Chuck D and Flava Flav. Is, oh, yeah. The hype man. It's definitely one of a kind, you know, because you got Chuck D. He's a stoic, like serious. And then you got Flava Flav. He's this goofy dude. And, you know, even back in the day, I know like he did all these reality shows that were kind of stupid. And even Chuck D said he's like tarnishing the legacy of the, <laughs> the group by doing all this foolishness on TV. But yeah, back then it was just the perfect recipe for a group like that. Yeah, they play off each other so well. It's just so fluid and awesome. Uh, I love it. And Terminator X, the DJ, is incredible as well. So uh, yeah, definitely if you haven't heard that album, you like some old school rap, this is the one to check out. It was one of the first albums that I introduced my kids to from the (laughs) 80s because, you know, it's... It's one of those things where like, oh, you know, they say, oh, that's old. It's not cool. You know, and I can kind of see how some of the albums sound a bit aged. You know what I mean? But uh, this album, It Takes a Nation of Millions, it sounds like it could be put out right now. It's amazing. It really, really holds up. I bet your kids like the song She Watched Channel Zero because it just has that bouncy, repetitive kind of sample in it. That would be the song I would latch on to if I was a kid hearing this. (laughs) Awesome, man. All right. You're number two, Sean. All right. Number two. Let me see. Hmm. I'm making some last minute decisions. Uh What's going to be on the list? What's going to be an honorable mention? Um. 
Uh, you know what? Screw it. I, I've been dropping mainstream hits, so I'm going to go with Madonna. Like a Virgin Okay, is Madonna's best album. Is that a hot take? Yeah, I disagree with that. Okay. So it's hot for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like a lot of her other albums, but this one... I think this was the first Madonna album that I listened to front to back and really liked. And again, mm-hmm. first impressions. Um, I remember borrowing the Immaculate Collection, which was one of her first like greatest hits albums. Mm-hmm. Borrowing the CD from one of my mother's friends and never giving it back. I think I still have it. <laughs> And that kind of spun me off into like, wow, I actually really like Madonna and Mm -hmm. getting into her albums. I think her first album is really great. Uh, True Blue is really great. We've talked about Like a Prayer. We chose that album for one of our other topics in the past. But Like a Virgin is, it's my favorite. It's a landmark album of the 80s. It has a lot of great hits on it. I think the deeper cuts are good. And I don't skip any songs on it. So it's a really good just pop masterpiece. Absolutely. It's a great, great album. Her first three or four albums, all worth picking up and owning for sure. Yeah. I'm more of a fan of her first album just because of Lucky Star and Borderline. They're my favorite tracks by her of all time. So that's you know why I would pick that album. But Like a Virgin is incredible. So good that Weird Al had to uh, do a parody, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. My number two album is oddly a band that I just recently got into. And uh, I purchased this album very recently. And that is the Stooges album, Funhouse. Okay. Have you ever listened to much of the Stooges? Yeah, definitely. Was Raw Power the first one? No, Raw Power was the third album. Okay. okay. Yeah, the first one was self-titled. Ah, right, right. So their second was Funhouse, and I don't know what it is about this album. It doesn't have their hits on it. Like the first album has I Want to Be Your Dog on it. And then, you know, Raw Power is always known as their best album by a lot of people. Yeah. It's sort of their trademark album. But if you haven't listened to Funhouse... It is fantastic. And the reason I say that is you see this change that's going on with the Stooges from their first album up until their third album. And Funhouse is where that change takes place. And these sounds kind of mix together. Their first album is um, very psychedelic. Iggy Pop's the lead singer. And he hasn't really become Iggy Pop yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. The vocals are good, but it's more that kind of subtle, psychedelic vibe that goes with the first album. I Want to Be Your Dog is a little bit of a change in that, and that, you know, he starts kind of peaking a little bit, but not every song is like that on the album. But when you get the fun house, that's where he just explodes. And I think that album is just so good. And I just enjoy it so much more than I enjoy Raw Power. So, uh, Yeah, that's my pick, number two. Amazing. All right, so that brings me to my number one pick. And this is going to be a a lukewarm, in the microwave for 30 (laughs) seconds take. Um, I'm going to go with Jimmy Eat World 
But okay. I need to preface this with I am not counting their first album, which is this self-titled pop punk album. They don't acknowledge that this album exists. <laughs> and it's it's not bad. Like if I had written some of the songs on it, I would be pleased. You know what I mean? It's not the worst thing you ever heard in the world, but it's almost like a demo or something like they weren't the actual band that they became. I consider static prevails to be their debut album and clarity, which is my choice for number one to be their best album. A lot of people would say bleed American. Cause that's the album that they broke into the mainstream with. It was a massive hit with songs like the middle and the sweetness. And there's some other great singles on that album. And I love bleed American. But I think Clarity is a cut above any of their other material. It's an emo masterpiece with some longer songs, some quieter songs. Normally, stuff like that kind of tends to try my patience, but I can really like nestle into this album and get comfortable with the quieter parts, the more lingering parts. As Jimmy World's career went on, the lead singer was Jim Atkins, like, sang almost all of their vocals but earlier in their career the guitarist dude i forget his name but shared vocal duties and sings lead on some of these songs and i tend to like his songs a lot so it's a great freaking album it's got a lot of nostalgia for me a lot of memories (laughs) one particular girl i was chasing that i've talked about in the past introduced me to this album and i'm not gonna say i'm like fondly trying to think of her in particular but just the way i felt at the time is uh tied to this album for sure very nice so not only a controversial pick and that is not their favorite album by most people but that it may not actually be their second album exactly yeah <laughs> that's what i'm going for <laughs> All right. So for my number one pick, I wouldn't say that this is controversial. I would say that most people would say this is their best album. This is a band that I discovered a few years too late, and I hate that because I would have gotten to see them at the Cat's Cradle at some point when I was in college. Uh, Actually, my wife's friend who went to school with us, she actually saw them play live on this tour And uh, that is the band Neutral Milk Hotel, and the album is called In an Airplane Over the Sea. I don't really know how to start talking about this album. It's a very strange album if you've never listened to Neutral Milk Hotel before. I think it's fantastic and beautiful in a sense that this is a group of kids from the South who basically got together and met each other either in like Alabama or around Athens, Georgia. They all lived in a house together and wanted to be a band. They weren't really good at playing instruments. (laughs) That's the best way to say it. And so they would say, okay, well, we want a French horn on this album. So someone would go get a French horn, go down into the basement and just come up with something on that French horn. Yeah, And so The album is extremely organic. It's just this odd masterpiece. If you like it, you love it. If you don't like it, you're going to hate it. There's really no middle ground. But I think it is one of the most fantastic things 
that I've ever listened to. I, I remember where I was when I first heard it. I was um, in grad school. I was in a cultural studies class. We were driving up to New York in a van. And um, I remember listening to this album over and over again. It is one of the few 33 and a third books that I've ever read. And that book is a complete masterpiece because it talks about how the band made this album. It's from a fan's perspective. There's something not only about the music, but about the band that I really connect with because I have no musical ability, but I would love to produce something like that at some point. And I think that that's kind of what this band did. They kind of came out of nowhere with no real talent and made one of the best albums of all time. Several years ago, I actually got to see Jeff Mangum perform by himself, had front row center seats to see him play in an auditorium in Chapel Hill. And it was one of the most fantastic shows I've ever been to. That's awesome. Did he play material? Is it like Panic at the Disco where he is the band now? Was he playing those songs or like solo material? No, uh, he was playing those songs. Oh, cool. And there were some other members of the band there. I can't remember. Um, I believe, oh my gosh, they split in the different bands. Olivia Tremor Control was one of the bands. That's um, right, yeah. What was the other big band? Uh, it wasn't like the Elves or something like that. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, one of those bands opened up and actually played as his backup. So there were some original members that played with him on uh, the Neutral Milk Hotel songs, and that was mainly what he played. It was cool, but it wasn't the show that was played at the Cradle, and I believe it was 1998 that my wife's friend saw them play at, which would have been unbelievable. That's cool, man. Yeah, this album yeah. again. Elf is... Power. Elf Power was the name of the band. Yes. Oh, I was think I was thinking it might have been Elf Power, but I didn't yeah. want to say something stupid. I saw them open for Jay Mascus when yeah. I Yeah, awesome. They they are great. That group of people were called the uh like the Elephant Six project. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, this album is another internet meme album. This might be the top internet meme album. <laughs> <laughs> ever honestly this is like the 4chan like if if you don't like this album you don't have any right to ever listen to music kind of thing <laughs> like i can agree with that it's yeah. pretty much up there um it's i have amazing. some again good memories of this album my friend sarah who i've i've mentioned a bunch of times on this on this show um just a good old friend of mine introduced me to this album it's not one I spin a lot. I really like the opening track and then I don't so much like the second song. So sometimes it's hard for me to go through the whole thing. And I wonder how many times I've ever listened to it front to back. Not a lot, but I do get what people love about it. And uh, I think that that's a good choice. That's a, that's also one of uh, my friend Andre's picks when I asked him for ideas for this. So Cool. Well, if it says anything about their musical abilities, I can't play guitar with the sh- but I can play some Neutral Milk Hotel songs. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool.
right, man. Uh, so great list. Let's get into some honorable mentions. Sean, you want to start? Yeah. Well, like I said, I had Public Enemy on my honorable mentions. The other honorable mention I have, well, I, I would mention the Chemical Brothers, and I was going to kind of throw them in with Daft Punk, but it's a different situation because I haven't listened to every single Chemical Brothers album, so I don't, I can't actually make an argument that Dig Your Own Hole is their best album. But uh, their first album was Exit Planet Dust and then Dig Your Own Hole, which I love. It has a lot of nostalgia for me, but it's kind of dated by today's standards of electronic music. I think it came out in like 97 or 98. I listened to it a shitload in high school. <laughs> but uh, to me, it's my favorite album, but I don't know if I can make the case that it's their best album. And then the other one was Get Up Kids who I've mentioned many times on this show because I saw them three times in Austin and their second album, Something to Write Home About, I think is a 10 out of 10 perfect album. As far as like emo music goes or indie, it's just a flawless masterpiece front to back and it's easily their best album. What about you? All right. Well, I've got a few hot takes in here, some no brainers, but nice. Let me start out hot with uh, Pearl Jam versus. Oh, I agree with you on this, actually. Yep. Better than 10. I agree. Again, this was one probably from around the same time when Pinkerton came out. This was one that like I remember the cover. And I think I've mentioned this before because I was so into Pink Floyd's Animals at the time. Yes. The cover of Pearl Jam's Versus is very reminiscent of that. It's the sheep's face coming through the fence. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is cool. This has, <laughs> The artwork has the same <laughs> feel of one of my other favorite albums. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Versus is Pearl Jam's best album. Yep. Uh, hands down, I think it's the best. Great songs on there. Yep. Um, the next album I picked was Holes, Live Through This. I'm surprised I wasn't on your list. Well, it would have been, but I was like, I've talked about this album so much that I would say my top five is probably not my top five best albums, but ones that I haven't mentioned on the show, other than my number one pick, I think is solid. Yeah. But yeah, Holes Live Through This, I think is by far their best album. Um, what might be a hot take if you're an Elvis Costello fan? I think this year's model is much better than My Aim is True. Okay. I just think it has like a better vibe, some faster songs. It has a more of a, of a reggae sound to it. I like a lot better. Speaking of Elvis Costello, uh, I heard Burt Bacharach just passed away. So RIP, Mr. Bacharach. They were really, really good friends and made a few albums together. Yeah. Another album that we've talked about that I could have put in my top five was uh, The Jizzes, Liquid Swords. Right. It's an album that you and I love. If you love Wu-Tang's, was it Enter the 38 Chambers? Is that correct? I think it's 33. Hold on. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> Some number. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we've got one for our soul friends to point out next time. But... If you like that album and you love all the old school samurai sampling, this is basically <laughs> Wu-Tang album part two, but I think it's better than the 33 and a third chambers album. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We were both wrong. <laughs> is it 39? No. Keep guessing. 36. It's 36. <laughs> 
<laughs> no corrections necessary. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad we got that shit cleared up. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, the Jizz's Liquid Swords. If you love 36 Chambers, you're going to really, really dig this album. And I, I think it's even better. And it, it has guest appearances. I mean, uh, Old Dirty Bastards on there. I think Red Man makes an appearance. And uh, all the usuals are on that album as well, filling in. I think Tools Anima is their best album. I think Undertow was their first album. And then Opiate came out before then, but Opiate was an EP. So I didn't count EPs on this list. Yeah. Anima is just that album that I can listen to front to back. It is fantastic. I love all the songs. I love all the little filler tracks that go along with it, too, in between songs. So, so good. And I saw them on that tour, too, which is amazing. British band that most people might not know or just remember the song, Woohoo, that made it to MTV. Uh, Blur's Modern Life is Rubbish is fantastic. Yeah. It's a great, great album. My wife introduced me to this album when we first met and uh i tell you front to back great great album another one is uh slint's spiderland oh yeah i forgot about that another good like kind of obvious choice yeah if you know who slint is it's an obvious choice right <laughs> true true yeah again another like 4chan music meme album yeah. but yeah that's kind of where i'm coming from that's an album you hear and you're like oh I know 20 bands that ripped this off and now I'm hearing <laughs> yeah. like where, where it originally came from. Yep. Absolutely. And then my last pick, which Sean's going to love is Radiohead's the bins. <laughs> of course. That's a hot take though, man. It's a very hot take. Oh, Most absolutely. People say, okay, computer's yeah. the best. okay. Or kid a or rainbows. Yeah. I, I know. I know, <laughs> but I would agree with you. Actually, the Benz is the only Radiohead album I like. Because it has, you know, when they were kind of a rock band and had song structures and stuff. Yeah. Least favorite song on there is Fake Plastic Trees. It just kind of drones out a little too much for me. A little overplayed. But uh, every song on that album is solid and much better than OK Computer. So suck on it, listeners. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I actually have one I forgot because I had it in my list and then moved it at the last minute. Um Caro Caro Bonitos, Bonito Generation. Okay. I've talked about them before. I was able to see them live twice in Austin. Once was with my wife and we had a really great time. But Bonito Generation, even to this day, it's hard to listen to the music they've made since because it's very different. And I just think they hit the sweet spot with that album. And it has Trampoline on it, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Yes, I think I put that on one of our um, shows. Yeah, it was in an episode in the past. Yeah, it's just a great album. And if you want to just listen to something that will put you in a good mood, that's a great album. Don't ask me to recall what show I put that on, because that would be like <laughs> me trying to guess the number of chambers in the Wu-Tang album. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, speaking of Wu-Tang, I wonder if uh, I didn't put this in the notes, Rich, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind me making an announcement because it's kind of music related. All right. I mentioned my friend Andre, who is somebody who I met way back in New Jersey when I was working at an animal pound, and he volunteered at the animal pound because we had a lot of local kids from the high school would come in and help us feed the cats and dogs and clean up after them, and met a, a lot of awesome young people that way, and... Andre was one of the kids who came in and helped us out. And he and I and our other friend, Alex, 
we just became really close friends. And one of the things I loved about chatting with those guys back in the day was that, you know, they were late teenagers, like 16, 17 years old, just discovering all the boomer music that everybody goes through, (laughs) like Zeppelin and Hendrix and stuff. Yeah. We had these like really funny debates about that kind of stuff all throughout the years. And, you know, now he's grown man. He's a brilliant person. And he and I, to this day, have always just nerded out on music whenever we talk. And he has a podcast called Disc Junkie that you can find on Spotify and YouTube. There is an RSS feed, so you can find it on a podcatcher, but you have to kind of do it manually. But I did a guest spot on Disc Junkie where we talked about album sequencing and if you want to find that, I tweeted it a couple times. I've listened to it. It's a very good show, by the way. Thank you very much. And it just made me think of it because Wu-Tang was one of the things we talked about. But yeah, we had such a good time recording that episode that we decided to spin off kind of a side podcast of Disc Junkie, and it's called Two LPs in a Pod, where the format is we come up with a theme or a topic and we each choose one album to discuss and review and analyze. And then we both listen to the album for a couple of weeks or whatever and form our opinions on it. And then we go on a show. The first one we did was about an hour long. That's what we're shooting for mm-hmm. to just recommend an album to each other and then talk about both albums. So that is two LPs in a pod. It's on the disc junkie feed. So if you can find that on again, Spotify or YouTube, We've put out one episode so far. It was on emo albums. It's funny because we picked two albums that arguably don't even come close to the emo genre, but <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very interesting to talk that out. And then our upcoming episode, which we're going to record in a few weeks here, is One Album Wonders, which I believe is a topic we've had on this show. Mm-hmm. We made a list of topics, and a lot of them were stolen from stuff that you and I have talked about on the show, Rich. So you're going to hear a lot of my favorites, but I'm trying to go out of my wheelhouse for this one. I think kind of the point of the show is that we are both introducing each other to new stuff and not just trying to bolster a case for why Fugazi is my favorite band or whatever. So I think you'll hear some new and exciting things from me, like trying to challenge myself and Andre is doing the same thing. So again, much love and respect to Andre, even though he's way younger than me, I look up to him so much because he's so freaking smart. He's like a scientist or something, (laughs) but but he's a really, really well-read music nerd as well. So he gives me a run for my money when I think I know a lot about music. So it's awesome talking to him. Anyway, two LPs in a pod on the Disc Junkie feed on Spotify and YouTube. Please check it out. Please subscribe. Even if you're not going to listen to the whole thing, it would help us. We need some exposure here. So thanks for letting me do that. Oh, absolutely, man. Like I said, listen to a great show and uh, looking forward to uh, some new episodes for sure. All right, man. Well, uh, since we're covering so much media, why don't we talk a little bit about films we've seen recently? I saw a lot of your posts on social media a lot of old school Hollywood glamorous actresses that you posted photos of. So yeah, I'm just curious to hear about some films that you've seen and wanted to talk about some that I've really been getting into lately. Absolutely. Okay, but first I have to take a bathroom break. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I've always been into movies. We've talked about movies a lot on the show. But at some point, I was in a little bit of a rut with movies. I wasn't watching a lot of them. Didn't have a passion for them. It didn't last long, maybe a couple months or whatever. And then I went to the theater with my wife, and I saw this movie called Pearl. I don't know. This movie got under my skin in such a way, and it spun me off into watching movies on a kick that I've never been on before with movies. About 10 or so years ago, I did a blog called Every Day a Movie, where I tried to watch at least one movie every day for a year and write like a two-sentence review about it. And that lasted for six months. So at one point, I watched a movie every day for six months. That's impressive. Yeah, it was, it was fun, but the, I got burned out, and that's why I stopped doing it. This time around, though, man, I was watching like two or three movies a day for a few months. I watched like 100 or 200. Like I watched so many damn movies in the last couple months and it only died out because my wife and I had to start planning moving. So that started taking up a lot of my time. But yeah, it was all inspired by this movie Pearl, which I do want to talk about. So one of the things about Pearl is that it's kind of a tribute to older style movies and it's set in 1918 and it's shot with like a color palette that is supposed to be reminiscent of early Technicolor films. Yes. And it's kind of a, I don't want to say a mishmash, but it's more to give you the feel of watching an old movie. So I thought to myself, I used to love watching old movies. I should get back into that. And I went further back than I ever have, because I know in the past I've gotten into the movies of the 60s and 70s. I don't think I ever went so far back as to watch like 1930s films or even older like silent films from Mm -hmm. the teens and 20s. And that's kind of what captured me in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I watched so many movies from the 1930s that I actually became convinced that like that was where Hollywood peaked. Once I calibrated myself to really just enjoy and just be able to watch these movies, I was like, wow, other movies just don't compare. Special effects, color, like all that stuff doesn't matter. These movies are just so well acted and well written and have good stories and emotional resonance that I really was just like, wow, the movies of the 30s are amazing. I'll just throw out some recommendations. Sure. There's a lot of pre-code films, uh, and I don't. That's a rabbit hole you can go down. That sometimes it's called the Hayes Code, but that's not exactly accurate. It's like a standards and practices, like way before we had a rating system. These movies were very uh, spicy, let's say, <laughs> and surprisingly so. And you, it makes you wonder what would have happened if they'd have kept going in the direction they were going. But some movies that were like very scandalous. Hot Saturday is a pretty interesting movie because it was one of Cary Grant's earlier films, and I know you're a big fan of him. Mm -hmm. 
ladies they talk about is one of my favorites. It's a women in prison movie, which is kind of even it was a its own niche genre even back then. And that has Barbara Stanwyck in it. And she's one of my favorites. The one host of Turner Classic Movies calls her the best actress of all time. And I find it hard to argue with that. I could name a million other movies, but I would just say there's a website, I think it's called precode.com or precodefilms.com. Just find that and look at his recommendations list. And okay. uh, it's a gold mine of awesome movies. And a lot of them are funnier than anything you've ever seen. A lot of them are more thrilling than anything you've ever seen. And it's just amazing watching something from a different time, something from a hundred years ago, something from when... My grandmother wasn't even alive yet. It's very interesting to just watch something that you have no connection to in that way. It's like a time capsule, but it's contemporary at the same time. It's in English, easily understandable. It's amazing. It's a shame a lot of those films are kind of being forgotten about, you know? Yeah, well, luckily, there's a lot of subreddits about old movies and there's a lot of uh you know like the criterion collection and a lot of these boutique blu-rays which is another whole rabbit hole i've gone down blowing (laughs) tons of money on these blu-rays oh yeah yep there's a lot of efforts to restore a lot of these films and keep them alive but you're right a lot of them have been lost there's hundreds and hundreds of films from the 20s and 30s that have been lost and earlier than that as well because the film they used was highly flammable so a lot of them succumb to fires and that's a another very interesting history so um but yeah i also watch a lot of modern stuff a lot of horror movies i don't know again which direction you want to take this in because i have a lot of interesting picks sure go ahead okay uh have you ever seen this isn't a horror movie but have you ever seen the movie spring breakers <laughs> i've heard great things about it but i have <laughs> not seen it a few of my friends are very, very obsessed with it. I'll say that. Yeah. So, you know, Harmony Corinne, right? Like, I think we've mm-hmm. talked about him before. He wrote Kids. He directed Gummo. Yeah. He's a weirdo. He's really avant-garde, kind of a, I don't know, he's a jerk. He was a drug addict. He did this thing where uh, he tried to make a film where he, he would just like pick fights with people on the streets of New York and that didn't <laughs> go well, apparently. So the movie never came out or maybe it did. I don't remember. But he he made this movie called Spring Breakers, which, again, he kind of fooled the world with it because it has all these Disney people in it and James Franco. But the whole thing is like, it's just this like hyper stylized fantasy of idealistic, like what teenagers think Spring Break is and all this other stuff. And there's all this subtext to it. But it was just an awesome movie. And I, it has, uh, (laughs) it's funny because it starts with... The Skrillex song, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites, which is a song that's like, it's meant to be annoying. And I think a lot of people probably hate that song, but that's one of my favorite songs. (laughs) (laughs) So the movie starts off with that. And I was like, oh, I'm going to like this. You know what I mean? Right. And James Franco is just hilarious. The girls in it are all pretty good. Like the ending makes no sense, but that's the whole point of the movie. Like. (laughs) I don't know. I would recommend it to you, Rich. Not for children. There's nudity on the screen probably 90% of the movie. Well, sign me up then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When I watched it, it, that was kind of off-putting to me. I actually, my tweet about it was that it was a pornographic music video, which I stand by. But after sleeping on it, I was like, man, that really got under my skin in a good way. I like that movie a lot. 
Yeah. I've heard great things. Yeah. It's very comical from friends of mine that just are kind of obsessed with it, you know? Yeah. One of the other ones before we get into the horror stuff is Come and See. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Never heard of it. It's a war film. It was kind of hard to find. It was made in the Soviet Union in the early 80s, I think. And it's a World War II drama. But it became popular when Criterion did a Blu-ray. And I believe a 4K is available of it. This is a movie that kind of lives up to the hype. It's got a lot of word of mouth hype around it. And it's about three hours long. But it's one of those movies that's like, oh, this is three hours long. But as soon as you start it, you're like... I don't care if this is 10 hours long. It's so compelling that you can't take your eyes off the screen. And it's, again, very harrowing, very disturbing, but definitely one of the best war movies I've ever seen. Very nice. So let's talk horror or talk about anything. What are some that you've seen lately? Or Phantom of the Paradise. We can't forget (laughs) that. (laughs) Yeah. No, man, let's talk horror. I'll start out... With this new theater room, I've been watching horror films nightly. I'll just get the kids in the bed, come up, you know, watch a quick 90-minute film and call it a night. And one of the things that has always intrigued me, but I never really sought out, were Hammer films. Are you familiar with Hammer films? Yes, but I haven't seen uh, many, if any. So... Most people know the Universal monster films that came out in like the 1930s. You know, you get your original Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man. It carried on into the 40s with um, the Wolfman and then 50s Creature from the Black Lagoon. So in between that time, around the 50s, you know, we, we moved kind of into the atomic age. So most of the horror films around that time were these giant monster movies, you know, or, you know, would have something to do with nuclear war. It would bring, you know, a monster from the depths like Godzilla, for instance. Right. Yeah. Middle of the sixties, there was a studio called hammer because of all the atomic age movies. The um, old monster films had gone out of fashion. And so what hammer did was they brought these monsters back it was kind of like this resurgence and the black and white from the old movies was replaced with this vibrant technicolor, which is what you were talking about with the movie Pearl. And so these hammer horror films are very bright. They're vibrant. There's blood in them, which, you know, you didn't see in the original films. There are scantily clad and sometimes nude women in these films. So they've basically taken these monster films and pushed them to a higher level. If you've ever seen Christopher Lee's Dracula, that was really Christopher Lee's start was in these Hammer horror films. And he was in several of the Dracula films, along with his really good friend, Peter Cushing, who usually played Dr. Frankenstein. For whatever reason, I had this huge hole of never really seeing any of the films from the 60s. And I got to say, man, I am completely obsessed with these Hammer films now. That's awesome. They are so good, and I would really, really recommend checking them out uh, because the stories are just fantastic. I mean, not only is it, you know, just great horror and cinema, you know, it doesn't compare as far as being scary like films are today, but, you know, you could see at the time how terrifying this would have been. What would be one to recommend to start with? 
Oh, that's that's a good question. And you know, there's a few I haven't seen. I've always heard Curse of Frankenstein, which was the first Peter Cushing Frankenstein film, is the best of that era. I haven't seen that yet because it's on order. <laughs> I went and started picking them up locally where I could find them. Yeah. So that's one that's always recommended. Most people say to start with the Dracula films, and I think that's a good place. The Horror of Dracula, that's what it was called in the state, so that's where you'll find it here. Uh, it was just originally called Just Dracula Overseas. Most people say that that's one of the best, and you should start there, but I would say Dracula Has Risen from the Grave is really, really good. And then there's another one called Taste the Blood of Dracula, which is this really, really awesome story about... Dracula has died in the previous movie, and so this passerby scrapes up the blood and puts it into a vial as sort of this old relic, and he sells it to these people who drink it, and hell ensues after that. What I really love about the Christopher Lee vampire movies is that they all connect to each other. All the Frankensteins don't do that necessarily, but the Dracula films do. Like, he will die, and then they will bring him back a certain way in the next film, you know? It reminds me a lot of the uh, Friday the 13th series. You know how Jason dies and they always have to bring him back some crazy way. So I think that was sort of a precursor to those types of films as well. The Mummy, uh, which was um, redone as a Hammer film, is fantastic as well. And I've heard Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde (laughs) is um, a really, really good one. It's where... Uh, Dr. Jekyll drinks something and actually turns into a woman. Supposedly very, very good. But uh, hopefully in the future I can recommend some more of these Hammer films. Like I said, I've seen a ton of them. Uh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed was very good. Revenge of Frankenstein was awesome. Um, And I've been watching some of the earlier films, too, from the 40s. There's one called Return of the Vampire with uh, Bela Lugosi reprising his role of not Dracula, but just a vampire in this one. And that film was fantastic as well. Yeah, like you, man, I've been digging back and uh, trying to fill in some gaps and some of the errors where I haven't seen films before, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Before I go into my horror picks, do you have a Letterboxd account? I do not. It's a pretty cool website and it's like social media where you can like rate and comment on other people's ratings, but it's a good way to track all the movies that you watch because it has like a a section where you can put what date you saw the movie and then give it a five out of five star rating. And then if it's a rewatch, so mm-hmm. then it puts a little rewatch icon next to it. I'm Grey Ghost 81 on there and I've tweeted that out before. So if you make a profile or if anybody's listening, let's follow each other. Man, like I have an odd relationship with horror movies. And I guess I'm at an age now where like just watching people be sadistically tortured and killed <laughs> doesn't doesn't do it for me anymore. I can't like, do the torture way. films, man. Yeah, I don't exactly. I don't care for those. So it's got to have some kind of story or some kind of other mm-hmm. hook to it. For example, Jacob's Ladder with Tim Robbins. That mm-hmm. movie is really cool. Psychological horror shot in a really amazing way i i enjoyed that one a lot there's a thriller called the vanishing i've seen it yeah what country is it from i don't remember but it's uh dutch or danish yeah it's one of the nordic countries i feel like yeah that's definitely a uh mind frack of a a movie (laughs) um (laughs) 
they put that on on Criterion, I believe, as well. It is, yeah. I don't own it. I watched it. That might be one I pick up the next time they have a sale. Um, <laughs> my wife and I watched, I wonder if you've seen this one, We Are Still Here from 2015. That one was got a, a lot of buzz when it came out. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. Okay. I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, it's an interesting like haunted house movie the cast of characters is a bit older so it's not like kids running around getting hacked up and it goes from atmospheric to like super violent and gory so it's a very interesting tonal shift that really works actually malignant have you seen that one i know about it it's french film isn't it uh no this was uh like kind of a it's a james wan directed modern like it came out a year ago or two years ago yeah yeah it's not very old yeah that one was pretty good it got a lot again a movie that got a lot of buzz that just was on my radar for word of mouth i give that one three stars and then recently i do want to talk about pearl and x last because they're so like important to me but i also saw megan which was really cool I liked it a lot. I know a lot of people are dunking on it, but you got, I don't care that it's PG 13. I don't care that it's whatever else that there was TikTok viral dances that came out of it. I don't care. It was a funny ass movie and it was really, I don't want to say like really good. Oh, it was a masterpiece. I gave it three and a half stars. I was really glad that my wife and I took a chance on that one. It was good. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I was in the skeptics camp on this one, you know, because yeah. I was like, oh, it's just, it's Chucky, man. They're just trying to rehash it with a female doll, you yeah. know, make it this kind of AI thing. But uh, I think it's got a very, very high rating on Rotten Tomatoes, like 90 something. So, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to see it now. You know, I'm very curious. Yeah, I think you would like it, honestly. And then interestingly, Megan is the last movie we saw at the Alamo Draft House in Austin. And the first movie we saw at the Alamo Draft House in Raleigh we saw this weekend was Infinity Pool with okay. uh, Stellan Starsgard, I think, and Mia Goth. No, it's Alexander Skarsgård. Sorry, I don't want to get my Skarsgårds messed up. Yeah, don't screw up your Skarsgårds. <laughs> <laughs> so Alexander Skarsgård and Mia Goth, who was in Pearl. I'm at the point that I will see anything that Mia Goth is in because I'm just like, I'm standing Mia Goth. I think she's amazing. Infinity Pool was pretty good. My wife liked it more than I did. It gets a little bit artsy-fartsy, but... It's a sci-fi horror. There's a sci-fi element to it, so I really appreciated that. And then, of course, Mia Goth just going ham and carrying the film on her shoulders, just like she did with Pearl. So I don't know mm -hmm. if you have any other thoughts or flicks to recommend before we... I just want to end it on X and Pearl, because I really want your thoughts on those. No, uh, I'll just say that when you mentioned Malignant earlier, the one I mixed it up with, I think the French film is called Martyr. Oh, Martyrs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martyrs is interesting. That's a, that's I a, heard it's pretty out there and violent. It's and, a, Yeah, it's hard a hard recommendation because it is super brutal and it's just like, eh. I don't yeah, think you've seen anything it yet. by watching it unless you're just a gore yeah. hound and like disturbing movies. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's talk about Pearl and X. 
I've seen both of these films as well. I, and I want to send a thank you to you. You actually shared a uh, digital copy with me, and I really, really appreciate it. It was awesome. What was not awesome is having to create a count to uh, somehow get this code to watch it on my TV. But yeah. now I have a Voodoo account, and uh, <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm good to go with any more digital codes that I get. I'd never done that before. So, uh, you know, this is my old man coming out trying to set this up. But I was successful and did get to watch it. And uh, my wife and I quite enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah, so this is a movie I liked so much that as soon as we walked out of the theater seeing it, I pre-ordered the Blu-ray. And then as soon as we got home from the theater, I downloaded it on BitTorrent to watch it again. (laughs) And um, as soon as I got the Blu-ray, I watched it again. And then I gave you the code again to get you into it because you had seen X... And Mm -hmm. I saw Pearl first, obviously. I didn't see X until after I saw Pearl. There's different opinions on which one you should see first, but I would say they're interchangeable and your experience is going to be different based on which one you watch first. But Mm -hmm. I think if, if I had seen X first, I wouldn't like it as much. I guess I should explain Ty West, who directed these films. He also directed uh, House of the Devil, which is a movie we talked about in the past. That's really good. It's a really good flick. And a couple other movies of his that I haven't seen, actually. But he made X during the pandemic. And they were kind of, I think they were in a way, like kind of stuck in New Zealand. And they had this like time on their hands. So they got A24 to greenlight a prequel while they were there. And he and Mia Goth wrote this movie and then shot it like around the same time they were making X. So actually, both of these movies came out in the same year, which is 2022. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating that they were able to pull that off. And they got Pearl greenlit before X was even done. So... The whole thing is just fascinating, but it gives this opportunity to make a film where they're both filmed in the same location, but in different time periods. So Pearl takes place in 1918, as I mentioned, and X takes place in the 70s. And what Ty West tends to do, as far as I understand, is make films that are kind of like tributes to a certain genre or time period in horror movies. So basically X is his take on Texas Chainsaw Massacre absolutely era, yep. like 1970s exploitation cinema and then like I said Pearl has been described as the Wizard of Oz meets Psycho which I think is a good <laughs> a <Yeah>. good analogy <laughs> so yeah seeing Pearl first I went back and watched X I really like them both but again I was glad I saw Pearl first Rich because when I watched X I was like I don't think X quite sticks the landing that he was going for. And maybe it's just, again, an age thing. Because when I saw Texas Chainsaw for the first time, I was a teenager and it really blew my mind. Oh, I was very young. I was yeah. <laughs> eight or nine when I first saw it. And oh, it man. really freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, that stuff, even as a teenager, like gave me nightmares. But with X, I was more like I had already seen Pearl. And I know who the character is in X and I'm like rooting for her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the first kill in X, it's very well done. But I was, instead of being like, oh, yikes, I was more like, yeah, get that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. See, I saw X first. Um, mm-hmm. So I have the opposite perspective and I'm glad I saw X first. So the movies are tied together. We can at least say that. Yeah. 
But I was glad I saw X first because it was sort of like going back and getting the the story of what transpired in X. And it was just interesting in that way. A lot of the scenes like the lake scenes on the dock, you know, you see those in the first film. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm really, really glad I saw X first. Having that bit where you hear the name Pearl at the end of X and then going and seeing like the prequel to it, for some reason, it just works so much better for me and kind of let me see like the buildup of that character. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So I think you do get different perspectives depending on the order you watch it in. I can't say that my way is better than the way you watched it, but you are going to get a different experience depending on which one you see first, right? Absolutely. And we should mention as well that X features Jenna Ortega, who's another kind of scream queen at the moment. She uh, played Wednesday recently in the hit Netflix show Wednesday based on the, the Adams family. She's also an ex. So this is what I mean by, I think whichever one you watch first, you made the right decision, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. um, Again, with Pearl, in my tweet review of it, I said it was the best rooting for the bad guy movie I've ever seen. Because with the character of Pearl, the plot of the movie is that she lives on this farm and wants to be an actress, like a Hollywood actress and dancer, and wants a better life for herself. But her mother is kind of tyrannical and her father is infirm, so she has to take care of him. And I think... I put on to that some personal attributes. My exact situation wasn't the same, but I see like some abuse subcontext that wasn't on the screen necessarily. And I think part of that is me projecting myself onto the character, but also it really made me just root for her to a certain point. And then there's a point near the end of the film, even like some of the things she does towards the middle of the film, I'm rooting her on like a certain kill she makes. Some people might defend the character, but I'm like, no, he deserved it. Um, And then, (laughs) but then towards the end, I was like, okay, you lost me, Pearl. I'm sorry. The emotional point of that was interesting to experience. You know what I mean? Like rooting for the bad guy to a certain point where she does something that I'm not in favor of oh it's such a great i want to watch it again now (laughs) (laughs) well you know i think that we can both safely say that ty west is one of these up-and-coming great filmmakers i mean i don't want to say up-and-coming i mean he's you know he's already knocked it out of the park but it's good to see some refreshing good-looking very original horror films and i think that's what we've been missing out on for yeah. so many years, people like Jordan Peele and Ty West are really making these films that really cause you to think or just stunning visually. So um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, other things this guy puts out. Well, someone like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, when, when he was around, people would look forward to going and seeing Alfred Hitchcock films. Yeah. And I feel like that's what we're going through now with Ty West and Jordan Peele. Like, what's the next one going to be? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I should mention, as you probably know, the X-Pearl thing is going to be a trilogy. And the third movie called Maxine is slated to come out this year. And with how fast they whip together the other two, it's possible. But there was a 
teaser trailer at the end of Pearl for this thing called Maxine, which is... I did not see that. Yeah, so Maxine was a main character from X, and this will be... Also played by Mia Goth. Exactly. She's just <laughs> she's so great. So, yeah, that'll be her further adventures as Maxine, apparently. So we'll have to see, but I'm very excited for that. Have you seen Nope yet? No, you know what? I've never seen Jordan Peele's movies. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh man, please, please, please go and watch his films. So good. Yeah. Get Out's fantastic. Us, you would love it too. His style's great. We just watched Nope the other night and I thought it was wonderful. See it? Oh well, I gotta give him a chance. Well, man, I could go on for days about flicks and just the movies that I'm watching. And I'm glad like now that I'm settled into this new place, there's not a lot of errands that I need to do and things I need to take care of. Like we're moved in. Now I can start watching movies again. So, yeah, follow me on Letterboxd and (laughs) watch for my tweets when I feel like tweeting a movie review. Yeah, I'll be there soon as well. Awesome. Should we go into pickups, Sean? Yeah, we should. I didn't write any of mine down, so I'm going to go off the top of my head. Like I said, when I went to this uh, video game store in Garner, North Carolina, I picked up Omega Quintent for the PS4. My wife got me for Christmas only things that I asked her for, so it was a, a bit interesting. We were trying to save some money, so I said, let's be conservative. Here's a few games that I want that you can just get for me. Like I love when she picks out stuff for me because it tends to be really cool and interesting stuff that I sometimes I've never heard of. However, you know, just in the spirit of trying to save money for this move, I was just like, here, here's a handful of stuff that you can get me. I put it on an Amazon wish list and just sent it to her. So she got me the NIS collection for the switch that had Rhapsody, a musical adventure on it just because I'm, so obsessed with that game we've done an episode on it 
she got me the Dio Field Chronicle, which I'm currently playing, and I'll talk about when we get to that. Valkyrie Elysium for PS4, which is the most recent entry in the Valkyrie Profile series, which at first when they announced what it was, which is a basically an action hack and slash game, I was like, hell no, I'm not playing this. But then it started getting really good, not really good reviews, but people were like, oh, this game is actually pretty good. I saw it was on sale, so I threw that in my wish list, and she ended up picking that up. Um, you sent me some stuff, right? I did. <laughs> you sent me actually a vinyl of one of my favorite records of all time, which is You're Gonna Miss It All by Modern Baseball. That was uh, amazing. Too. That was a strange find. I just really? came across it. Yeah. I texted you while I was in the store. I was like, what's that Modern Baseball album that we listened to? <laughs> and you told me, I was like, oh, okay. And so I just picked it up. That was awesome. I did buy a turntable. I don't know if I've talked about that on the show because it's something we have talked about previously, but I ended up getting one that you and uh, Metal Fro recommended to me. And then my vinyl collection is still very small. I really don't want to just buy a bunch of crap. You know what I mean? And yeah, I got a lot of vinyls from my buddy. I won't say his name because <laughs> he works at a place that does musical merchandise and he's let me uh get things that have fallen off the truck so to speak yes uh so i have a lot of vinyls from him but that was just stuff like oh okay i'll take that yeah i'll give that a shot but in general i'm trying to have records of like my favorite albums of all time so for you to send me that one really hit that spot because that is one of my favorite albums of all time and i really appreciated that and there was some North Carolina related stuff in there. So I considered that like a nice pre welcome package, which is yep. very nice posters and the, the magazines. Maybe you could explain a little bit better what those posters are. I have them put away right now. I haven't hung them up yet, but there's like a 3d one with Godzilla and it says yeah. Raleigh on it. That one's really awesome. I'm probably going to put it in a frame. It's uh, actually Winston Salem. Oh, okay. That, okay. So um, one of the artists that comes to my conventions, she um, made these 3D posters. I actually bought one for myself, like this awesome Bride of Frankenstein one. What she does is she frames them and then she gets like a piece of string and attaches it to the end of those paper 3D glasses. So when you walk up to the picture, you can just kind of slide them on, you know, and look at it. Got you one that was a Godzilla one that she did, and uh, she threw the other one in there for free. So I think there were like two posters that I sent your way. That's right. But yeah, I thought you would really enjoy the uh, Godzilla poster. There was also some uh, Pac-Man Perler bead earrings in there. I'm going to be honest with you. My wife doesn't wear earrings, so we may just convert those to uh, refrigerator magnets. But <laughs> those were really well done. My son did those. Oh, amazing. That yeah. makes it even better. Very cool. Yeah. You can tell them that, that uh, we appreciate it and uh, they might end up on the fridge. But yeah, that was that was great. And one other uh, pickup kind of popped into my head. Again, I'll talk about it a little bit more what we were playing. Did you get this Atari 50 collection that came out? No, I haven't gotten that yet. I was kind of on the fence about it until I learned a little more about it. Yeah, so I wouldn't have gotten this thing because I I know you are a big 2600 fan, but in general the older Atari stuff is not something that I'm that I like care about enough to buy something like this. 
Mm-hmm. But I found out that there are some Atari Jaguar games on this collection. And I'm not cheerleading for the Atari Jaguar. I think it's a, not a great console. There's not very many good games on it. However, there is a game on the Atari Jaguar called Ruiner Pinball. When I was younger, I had an Atari Jaguar because KB Toys, if you remember them. Yep. At one point when I was in, again, middle school or high school, they were doing a closeout on the Jaguars for like 30 bucks a piece. So I bought one and my sister and I played it a ton. And as I've mentioned it before, my sister, who is sadly no longer with us, we played Ruiner Pinball all hours of the day and night. (laughs) I don't know why. Like, it's not that good of a game. It's it's only got two tables. You would have to tell me how the physics are as far as a pinball game goes. Atari Jaguar emulation, as far as I know, is not great. I never pursued it. I never wanted to buy a Jaguar to play this game again. But lo and behold, they put Ruiner Pinball, of all things, on this Atari <laughs> 50 collection. And as soon as I found that out, instant buy. I just was like, oh, I need this like right <laughs> now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, playing that game again, it's, I don't know as far as pinball games go, but it, I like it. There's only two tables. One of them is like a World War II bomb kind of thing, like nuclear bombs. And then the other one is like a Dungeons and Dragons type theme. Uh, with like blood and guts and stuff. So <laughs> that's the reason I bought that. It's very cool to experience that game again. But yeah, I'm sure I have other pickups because last time we recorded was a long time ago. And <laughs> as usual, Black Friday and Christmas went by. And I know I got more stuff for Christmas that I'm just not thinking of. But yeah, in general, that's where I've been. So what about you? Got a few pickups. I'll start with my Christmas pickups. You were kind enough to get me a nice gift card for the Switch, which we have not used yet. <laughs> yeah. Can I clear the air of something? This is so funny. We've been friends for going on 10 years now. And our routine is you send me these really thoughtful, amazing nice surprise gifts every year and i oh my god there's t-shirts there's blu-rays there's games there's handmade stuff there's this is amazing i'm i'm brought to tears by these beautiful gifts you send me and i'm like shit i got to get rich something uh eShop gift card <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> no, man, don't, please. I mean, don't, don't do it that way. That's one of the things for me. I'm the kind of person that just does that with gifts. That's just my personality. So you just need to chalk it up to that. I do all the Christmas shopping in my house for our kids. I would imagine. So that makes and my sense. wife does zero of the Christmas shopping. <laughs> it's just something I love to do. And, you know, I keep an ear out for things that they talk about during the year. And I keep like a little notepad on my phone. It's the same with, you know, someone like you. I will buy stuff throughout the year. I'll see some. I was like, oh, yeah, I think Sean would like that. And I'll just pick it up and uh, you put it away until Christmas. I have something right now in my closet for you for Christmas for next year. So <laughs> nice. that's just how I am. So don't feel like you need to get me something. That's just how I am. Got it. So the gift card, I'm very thankful for that. It's awesome. We haven't spent it yet. The kids, there's a few games that they're looking at on the switch. They want the new Zelda really, really badly. So, uh, 
it may go toward that or it may go to some um, other stuff that they had mentioned that one of their cousins had. And I'll probably pick myself out something along the way with that as well. Nice. Can I real quick, I want to recommend, I don't think I've mentioned this on the site, but there's a really good website called decudeals.com. Okay. Uh, I think I might have sent a link to you, but D-E-K-U deals.com is a website that shows the entire Nintendo eShop and what is on sale. Because sometimes just logging on to the eShop, it's very slow and it's hard to see. Uh, It's not very elegant, let's say. So (laughs) going to this website, it highlights things that are on deep discounts. It highlights things that are on their deepest ever discount. So you can kind of track, you can add things to lists and track them and wait for it to go on sale. So that's a great website. I just wanted to shout out there. Oh, nice. Thank you. Sure. So, sticking with the Christmas theme, I participated again this year in the RF Generation Secret Santa, and looks like our buddy Slacker, Jess, drew my name. Great guy. Uh, you know, I've never met him before, but I've you know known him for years and, you know, always spoken to him through private messages and just a super, super guy. And he really overdid it. The rule is spend at least $20, but he completely spoiled me this Christmas. He sent me a copy of Xeno Crisis on the Genesis, which was a homebrew game. It's sort of like a twin stick shooter in the vein of Smash TV, but oh, with okay. aliens. Yeah, nice. it's really, really good. I would definitely say pick that up. They actually did it for Dreamcast as well as a few other systems, but he bought me the Genesis slash Mega Drive version. He sent me a copy of Battle Axe on the Switch, a copy of Wagyan Land 2, which is a platformer on the Famicom. I already had part one. He got me part two. So I ended up ordering part three about a month ago. He sent me Medal of Honor Infiltrator on the Game Boy Advance, which is a very, very good game. Astro Blast for the 2600. Three Madden games. A copy of the DVD Special Win Lit. And to top it all off, the CD, The Bridge by Ace of Base. <laughs> nice. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. Uh, and he sent me a very kind letter with it as well. Again, just a just a really awesome guy. For Christmas, one of the um, things that I got from my wife was uh, a copy of Cuphead on the Switch. In a cartridge, not a code in a yes. box. Okay. That's right. That's cartridge. great. Great for your physical only nerds who... <laughs> who have to have chunks of plastic on shelves (laughs) to look it's got the new dlc on it i love it man that's a great game that's good very much highly anticipated i did want a physical copy of that game and then my wife also got me an evercade which is a um British system. I'm not sure. Basically, it's a console that plays mostly arcade games and then, you know, some classics. There's a Taito cartridge that has like six or seven games on it. There's Atari cartridges and things like that. So she got me that. It was on my uh, Amazon wish list. And it was just one of those things that I just kind of put on the wish list. You know, I was just kind of like not expecting to get it, just kind of a reminder. For me to like check out some games on it and because it was on there she bought it and i got it and didn't open it and um, ended up sending it back hmm. in my game room i was like i've got so much stuff already that i collect for and 
I already have a lot of these games, you know, when I was looking through the library. So I ended up sending it back and I got what was called a My Arcade Retro Champ. And it's basically a portable NES and Famicom player. And so I can play those games on the go. And I'm really, really into my Famicom right now. I'm playing games that didn't make it overseas, which you will find out how many I've been playing when we get to games played. Nice. So it's been great. It just really fits my lifestyle so much better. And I was happy that I did that. I picked up a copy of Oniken plus Odalis collection, which I was talking about in the last episode about how damn expensive it was. Well, it looks like they did a reprint of it, so I was able to get it for 40 bucks, and so I ended up buying it. I picked up a copy of Sheepo for the Switch, which is just a weird game. Looks like an RPG. You and I are always picking up the weird-ass games, and, and when I see them, I pick yeah. them up. And I picked up a game called Chicken Police for PS4. Nice. <laughs> it's like a gumshoe game, but it's... Uh, all these anapomorphic like characters, like people with like rooster heads and <laughs> dog heads, and it looks nuts. But uh, those are the kind of things that I'm really interested in. So yeah, man, uh, I think that's about it. So something you said reminded me of a big miss when I was talking about my pickup. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind shifting back to me for a second. Sure. I remembered that I had a limited run games copy of river city girls uh river city girls (laughs) which was a game i played on the switch i really liked it but i noticed the uh value of that particular copy and i had the soundtrack cd with it as well that came with it really has shot up in price and Video games are not investments, but some of limited run titles still command a pretty good value. So I decided to sell it because there was recently released a Japanese copy of River City Girls 1 and 2 released in Japan that has English on it. So what I did was I sold my River City Girls with the soundtrack for, I don't know, $120 or something like that. And I took all of that money and went on Play Asia and ordered a bunch of Asian region and Japan region games that have English in them. So one of them was the River City Girls 1 and 2. Another game I got was called Needy Girl Overdose. And this game came onto my radar because people compare it a lot to Doki Doki Literature Club. So I was like, okay, I want to check this out. And then I got two witch-related games. One is Little Witch No Beta, which is kind of like a third-person action game with witches. And then I got Trigger Witch, which is, I believe, a top-down shoot-em-up game. So all of these are for the Switch, and this was uh, a big play asia order that i placed as i was planning to move so i was like oh man that was stupid i hope it (laughs) arrives before i move so uh it was actually shipped to my office where i work but i ended up getting it like pretty quickly while i was still there so that was a a big one that i kind of forgot about i'm glad i remembered that so that should roll us into what are you playing right that's it All right. I only have a handful, so I guess I'll go first. I played a game called Ara Fell, which is available on Steam, I believe, as well as other platforms, but I played it on the Nintendo Switch. 
This is a game that I picked up somewhere along the line. Again, looking at the eShop for cheap games or maybe DecoDeals.com for cheap games. It was on my Switch and I just decided to give it a try. And it is a 16-bit style RPG. But it is one of those games that has the quality of life stuff of a modern RPG. For example, every time you win a battle, all your health and mana is replenished. So every battle is fresh. You don't have to worry about stocking healing items. The battle system is turn-based, but has some like other dynamics to it. Very interesting. The pixel art graphics are amazing. The only thing is... I played the game on very easy difficulty. Like there's only one difficulty below that, which is story difficulty, which makes the, it says it makes the battles like skippable. And I was like, I don't need to do that. Right. But then the game turned out like pretty grindy. Like I found myself having to grind out of situations a couple times. You know, it's not a long game, but I played it for 25, 30 hours, played through the whole thing. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. The graphics and music were great in that one. Have you ever heard of this game? No, I haven't. I would recommend it. Again, it's called Arafel, A-R-A-F-E-L-L. If you see that on Steam or on the eShop, highly recommend. So these next two games are, is just what I'm currently playing. Between moving and everything else, uh, I haven't completed a lot of games or been playing anything besides finishing up Arafel, playing some Ruiner Pinball on the Atari collection, and uh, I'm currently working through Greedfall and Dealfield Chronicles. So Greedfall is a Western-style RPG. It's a lot like Mass Effect or a Dragon Age or some kind of Bioware game in, the, in those veins. It's really good, though. I like it. It's set in, like, I don't know, the 17 or 1800s. I would say 1800s, like pirate colonial kind of times my wife saw me playing it and she's like are you playing assassin's creed because that's kind of what it looks like and it's just a good game with action and dialogue choice Uh, again if you've played mass effect you'll know what you're in for with this game and i'm really enjoying it the other one i'm playing currently is dio field chronicle it is a really good like real-time strategy some YouTube video I watched about it was calling it real time with pause. And I don't know if that's like a term that people use commonly to describe a game like this, but that's what it is. It's not on a grid. You're on a free moving plane, but you can like set your characters up to move and do actions like attacks and special moves or potions or summons or all this other stuff. But you have to move them around because then your enemies are doing those things as well. And it can get pretty hectic. Again, I'm playing on easy difficulty, which is the easiest difficulty in this game. (laughs) And most reviews say the game is too easy because there's a mechanic where the enemies telegraph their moves, like their special moves. You have like three to five seconds to react. So you can actually just a lot of times move your characters out of the way and you don't even have to (laughs) do anything else special. So a lot of people knock this game for being too easy, but I actually found my fingers twisting in knots trying to make sure everybody's in the right spot and doing the right thing. And it's, it's really good. I am enjoying it a lot and I'm doing a lot of replaying the missions and trying to get the best, like, cause each mission has, challenges like do it in a certain amount of time do it uh, without anybody dying and a lot of times the first time you go through the mission you don't hit them all so you you want to go back and do it again because you get you know rewards money or gems or whatever uh, crafting upgrading 
currency is in the game. This is a good one for anybody who likes strategy type RPGs. It's a cool story so far. It's also, again, not a very long game. I think most people clock it at about 30-ish hours. I'm going to be longer than that because I'm doing so many of the missions multiple times. I'm playing it on Switch, but it's available on pretty much everything. So highly recommend. You would like it a lot, Rich. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, Besides Bioshock Infinite, which I finished about 20 minutes before we started this recording. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to talking about that in a little bit here. Again, just like movies, when you're moving, that consumes all your free time. So need to get back into gaming, get back into movies, reading, all that, all those creature comforts that I'm into. So, Well, this may be the most games that I've played ever. Awesome. But I will keep it brief because all of these games are Famicom games. As I mentioned before, with the My Arcade Retro Champ that I bought, I've been playing a lot of Famicom games uh, with this handheld system and able to take them to work when I have some free time and play them. So it's just really, really nice. I played some games in this series called Kaiketsu Yanchamaru. I played the second and third installments of this game. This is actually the sequels that we did not get to the game Kid Nicky on the NES, which you probably have played before. Part 2 is very much like the first game, but the difficulty is nowhere near what it was. I was able to beat that one. It was a lot of fun. You have this sort of spinning kind of sword weapon that you use against enemies. And the levels in this game are kind of short. You're going through this amusement park. And so all the levels are kind of amusement park themed in some way. So that was a very interesting game. But the game that I liked the most was actually the third installment where the weapon is actually like a bow staff. And what's cool about this is it's this really neat platformer where you can actually use the bow staff to grab onto the edge of things and then kind of do a like a backflip to reach other areas. It's sort of like the back and forth that you would do in a game like uh, Ninja Gaiden. That's a little bit of a pricier game, but one that I would say if you're a big Famicom fan, you should have in your collection. I played another game and actually beat it. It's called Mitsume Gaturu. This is based on, I believe, an anime where you're this kid that has like a third eye in your forehead. And so you attack by shooting things out of this eye in your forehead. The sprites are a little bigger than a game like Mega Man, but it plays like a Mega Man game. And if you're into the Mega Man series, I would say give this one a try. Very good. I played a game called Door Door, which is sort of a girder game where you're going up and down ladders and platforms and there's these monsters that are chasing you. There's a specific number of monsters that have different movements and different patterns, sort of like how the ghosts move in different ways in Pac-Man based on the color of the ghost. They have different AIs. But with this game, you play this little cutesy character and you go around and you get the monsters to chase you and you open up doors. And when the monsters go inside the doors, you get points by closing the doors. The more monsters that you can capture within a door, the more points you get. Of course, when they go inside the door, they only stay there for a certain amount of time before they can escape. So it presents a pretty big challenge. But uh, if you like puzzle games like that, it's uh, a lot of fun. 
I tried out Star Wars on the Famicom, which is difficult and a notorious game where Darth Vader turns into a scorpion. That's an interesting game. I didn't get very far in that. I played a game called Bio Miracle Bakute Upa, which is a game where you play as a baby who has a rattle and you crawl across the screen. It's a platformer. And when you hit enemies with the rattle, they expand. And so you can do two things with them. You can jump on top of them, and as they float up to the top of the screen, it helps you get to other platforms. Or you can bump into them after they're inflated and hurl them at other enemies. So it's a really cutesy, odd game, but it's one that I would say is definitely worth checking out. It actually came out on the Famicom in the Famicom Disk System, and it's cheaper to buy it on the Disk System if you have that option. I played a game called Binary Land, where you play as two penguins, a male and a female. You move one, and then the other moves at the same time, left and right and up and down. And you have mazes on each side and enemies that try to get you. And what you try to do is you try to get to the top, and they have to meet at the same time in the middle of the top of the screen for you to pass that level. It's a very, very interesting game, one that I think is a lot of fun and enjoy quite a bit coming back to. I played a game called Chilsana Obake Achi Sochi Kochi. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And uh, the word Obake in uh, Japanese, it means ghost. And so this is a game that reminds me, have you ever played the game Amador or uh, Pepper on ColecoVision? No. Okay. So these games, you control a character and you go around a box And once you go around that box, you complete it, and then another box will light up, and you have to kind of do the same thing. You have this like little trail that goes around you. And so the way to beat the level is to surround all the boxes. Sounds simple enough, but as you go through the game, you can collect more of your ghost friends, and it makes your trail longer, so you can encircle more of the boxes at one time, and you have enemies that chase you that make it much more difficult. So uh, yeah, that game's a lot of fun. I played a game called Moai-kun, which is a puzzle game. You play as one of the Moa heads, you know, like on Easter Island, (laughs) those big heads. Nice. You're trying to get through these levels of platforms and enemies, and it's more of like a puzzle game where you're trying to get to a certain door on the level to get to the next one, but you have to like break blocks, push boulders, throw boulders, use enemies to get to those doors. So it's fairly difficult, but quite a fun challenge. And then the final game I played was called Battle Baseball, which is one that I saved for the end because you and I have talked about this game recently. It is a baseball game, but you get to play as the kaiju monsters, (laughs) including Godzilla, King Ghidorah, Ultraman. There are characters from other series that show up in this game, and it's a lot of fun. It's just cool to see, like, Godzilla standing at the plate with a baseball bat while the larva of Mothra is pitching to you. So uh, (laughs) it's a game that, uh, for you, Sean, I know you love baseball, and I know you love kaiju, so... uh, be the perfect game for you to check out. Yeah, I need to check that out. And I watched the YouTube video you sent me about it. That was great. And I believe this is somewhat of a series because I know there's a soccer game on the Super Famicom that is the same kind of situation. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had no idea. I'll have to find that one. Yeah. But that's it. Those are my games play. Awesome. That was a great list. I was curious. I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time. 
When the PS4 was out, it was kind of a joke on the show, like, I'm going to get a PS4 someday. Like, both of us were saying that for a long time, and then we eventually did. Do you have any interest in jumping into the Xbox series and PS5 generation? No, zero interest. Me too. That's so strange. Like, I just have no interest whatsoever. I I feel like I have a million games to play on everything up to the PS4, Switch, Xbox One generation. Mm -hmm. There are a few titles, I'll be honest, like Gotham Knight, I believe it was called, where you can play as Batgirl. Unfortunately, that's only on the new systems, and I've always wanted to play a Batgirl game, but uh, that one might elude me. And then The Plague's Tale, the sequel to that is only on the ps5 and the newer consoles so it's like i really want to play that but there's not a lot of examples of games where it's like i need that system and there's not going to be another metal gear solid game made by hideo kojima so i'm safe there that's what usually prompts me to get the new console but uh it ain't gonna happen this time so yeah i'm with you man i'm not gonna say never but i mean maybe when they come out with a slim version that's like 200 bucks but like for now yeah I'm not interested at all. Yeah, there are really no games that I've seen that I'm really that interested in. I think um, Returnal looked interesting, Mm. but I don't know what kind of reviews it's gotten. Yeah, I think I'm kind of at the end of my collecting rope, (laughs) so to speak. I'm sure my kids will want certain systems and want to buy them and we'll end up getting them for them. But I just don't think that I'm really want to go any further with collecting past where I'm at right now, PS4 switch. So yeah, Too black. that's where I'm Too at. Strong. Yo Chuck, these honey dribbles are still front on us. So I know we can do this, cause we always do this. <laughs> yeah, boy. Bass, how low can you go? Death Row. What a brother know once again back is the incredible rhyme animal, the uncannable thief, public enemy number one, five folks that freeze, and I got numb, can I tell them that I really never had a gun, but it's the wax that determined they the X-Bun, now they got me in the cell, cause my records they sell, cause a brother like me said, well, Farrakhan's a prophet and I think you wanna listen to what he can say to you, what you wanna do is follow for now, how are the people say, make a miracle, keep up the lyrical, black is back, all in, we're gonna win, check it out. I'm playing inside music that the critics are blasting me for. They'll never care for the brothers and sisters. Why come the country has us up for the war? We got to get them straight. Come on now, they're going to have to wait till we get it right. Radio stations are questioning black as they call us a black, but we'll see if they'll play this. I call him Norm, you know, he can cut a record from side to side, so what the ride, the glide, what should be safe, but then a soul.
All right. Well, let's roll into our main topic of discussion, which is Bioshock Infinite. And for those who are new to the show, this will conclude the entire series of Bioshock. And we also played System Shock way back in the day. So we've covered System Shock, Bioshock 1, Bioshock 2, and now, finally, Bioshock Infinite. And as always, we'll start with our question of the month, which is... What video game series do you love that at one point had a significant change in story, gameplay, or aesthetic? Going to Twitter, we had Disposed Hero. He said, Resident Evil immediately comes to mind. I've always loved the classic entries, and although the series went through a rough patch for a while, it has redeemed itself with recent entries. Huge shifts in gameplay and tone over the years, but I still love it just the same. That's definitely a disposed hero answer. That's one of his favorite series of all time. <laughs> Absolutely. And I agree with him. I actually love the series, but I actually probably like the games that he doesn't like more. I like the more action-y ones, which the old mm-hmm. school people don't like so much because they're not survival horror enough. It's a good thing that it has a lot to offer different types of fans. Next, we have Bickman2K, our good friend who says there have been several swings in aesthetic in the Zelda series, the biggest initial backlash being with Wind Waker. I love Mm -hmm. the cel-shaded look, but one of my favorites in the series is Zelda 2. Took an overhead dungeon crawler and made it side-scrolling with RPG elements. So yeah, the Zelda series is another one that has taken many different twists and turns. Always has that kind of core thing to it that makes it Mm -hmm. a zelda game but different mechanics different aesthetics i think that's a very good answer yeah even the new zelda games have taken a a turn with the breath of the wild i know our friend kelsey one of his biggest complaints was that there aren't dungeons in the you know the new series it's more like open world i know there's shrines and stuff you can go into but it just doesn't have that really zelda dungeon feel you know yeah, interesting. I haven't played it, so I don't know. But My kids are obsessed with it, man. They've beaten oh, nice. it several times, yeah. <laughs> cool. Duke Togo says, does I used to love it count? Because Final Fantasy. <laughs> and I asked him to elaborate. I said, when did it lose you? And he said, 13. That's a pretty good run. So he got up to 13 and wasn't a fan. He, he later mentioned that Bravely Default kind of carries the torch for him where he is looking for the Final Fantasy kind of feel. And then my friend Corey Robertson, he actually texted me his answer. Let me pull this up here. He actually had two answers that we've heard already, which is, I love the Zelda franchise. I would say this video game series feels like they have changed approaches a few times with Breath of the Wild and the Adventure of Link. So he, again, mentioning Zelda 2, which is a big shift. Um, And then he said Resident Evil is a good choice as well. Between the two, I'll go with Zelda. So that's his official answer, but he also dropped uh, Resident Evil in there. For me, it's kind of hard because like Resident Evil is one of them. Zelda is one of them. I'm not a huge fan of the Zelda games, but that was one of the first thing that came to mind. I think, again, like I mentioned, uh, the Valkyrie Profile series, Mm -hmm. there have been shifts in that game series from title to title, and I played a little bit of Valkyrie Profile too. I know the third one is like strategy. The newest one is a hack and slash. I can't speak to them because I haven't played them all, but 
I am a fan of the series in general, and I don't mind going on the journey of playing in different genres. Uh, I'm trying to think. How about Fire Emblem? So that is a good point. That's a very famous one. If you think about the shift, the whole thing of Fire Emblem is extreme difficulty and permadeath. And they changed all that with Awakening. They actually changed it in a previous game, but it didn't quite catch the way Awakening did. And again, I've talked about this before. People like me who came to the series with that game are called Awakening Babies (laughs) because (laughs) we were like, oh, there's no permadeath in this one. I want to give it a try. And it really made the series famous in the West. If it didn't sell so well, it would have been the last game in the series. Apparently, Nintendo was ready to pull the plug, but that became a smash hit. And a lot of the old heads hate it, but it's what got me and millions of other people into the series. So that's a that's a great call out. What were some of your ideas for this answer? Yeah, this was a tough one, but the one that I came up with and probably the most noticeable change for me was uh, Castlevania. Yeah, it's a, good a one. lot of people do not like Simon's Quest, but it's my favorite of the three that came out on the NES. It went from a action-adventure game where you're just in a castle to a more of a, uh, I don't want to say open world, because it's not the same sense of open world that we have today, but it had more of an exploration feel to it, and I enjoyed that quite a lot. I think what most people's problem is with that game is not necessarily the gameplay, but how vague the clues are and, you know, not knowing what to do. But I feel like that was kind of a fun part of my childhood was playing that game alongside of a friend of mine. We've talked about this before. Like you talk about it on the playground, you know? Yeah. That was your Nintendo power. That was your YouTube at that time. And so I have such fond memories of that and still love that game to this day. Another series that I could probably point to is the Mega Man series, because that one changed quite a lot, especially when it went to the PlayStation 1. But I wouldn't say that I'm really a fan of those 3D type games as much as I am the 2D. The Mega Man example is is a lot of spinoffs in different genres. Yeah, true. Would you say the whole, the whole main series is just action platformers, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But still a good answer. Another one that popped into my head is Red Faction. This started in the PlayStation 2 era as a first-person shooter, and there was Red Faction 2. With Red Faction 3, they went to, I forget what it was called, uh, damn, the one where you're on Mars and it's an open world. So that was the big change there. And then the fourth one, they went back to like a corridor shooter, and everybody hated it, but I thought it was a pretty good game. So that's an interesting one. And also, just the Grand Theft Auto series in general, it started as top down with the tiny little cars driving around from an overhead view and then the shift to 3d with grand theft auto 3 like changed the world you know what i mean absolutely i think that's a good example as well well that question was inspired by bioshock infinite which is again our game for this episode where we're concluding the main bioshock series This game actually came out just about 10 years ago, Rich. It was released on PS3, Windows, and Xbox 360 on March 26, 2013. Later that year on OS X, and then a couple years later in 2015 on Linux. It was once again developed by Irrational Games, published by 2K. Ken Levine is the lead writer and director of the game. 
And it was in development for quite a long time. I think the the first E3 trailer, which is still to this day like pretty famous, came out quite a few years before the game actually came out. So they spent a lot of time polishing this game to get it ready for prime time. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about this game last night, and uh, <laughs> one of them was the making of Bioshock, but it was before the game came out. So they kept referring to the demo and saying what you saw in the demo there, what you saw in the demo there. And it's like, I really wanted more material from after the game came out, like a postmortem from Ken Levine and his crew. But that video, if you can find it on YouTube, is still pretty good as far as a making of. There's a lot of voice acting stuff, and that's a big part of this game. But before we get too deep into it, I want to ask histories of this, because I don't think you've ever played it before, right? That's correct. The only time I've played any of these Bioshock games were for our playthroughs. So those are my initial thoughts and perspectives are always fresh and it's going to continue with this game. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, this one, again, I was a fan of this series from the jump. Uh, not Well, not with System Shock or the earlier games, but with Bioshock 1, that was that was a big deal. And I've talked about how I played it close to when it first came out and I bought Bioshock 2 and my wife bought it for me as a surprise on launch day and then with Infinite I can't remember if I pre-ordered it or whatever but I know I bought it as soon as it came out pretty much and I did really enjoy it but this game it is very well rated if you look at the aggregate scores it's 9.5s and 9s and 10s and everything but as Time goes on, looking back on this game 10 years later, there is a bit of a polarizing opinion about a lot of things about this game. Actually, you were the one who kind of pointed that out. I was wondering if you want to elaborate on that. From an outsider's perspective, when you hear the word polarizing, you tend to think that the game may be polarizing is because it takes some odd direction, right? And I knew this game took a bit of a different direction from the other two games. Never playing it, but being in the video game community and being a collector, you always hear these rumblings. And then I find out what was so polarizing about this game is that it was so critically acclaimed from the get-go. I think people were very upset about the glowing kind of positive reviews that it was getting because... I don't want to say this was the beginning of it, but it was very early in the process of where people were getting upset about people being paid to review games. You know what I mean? And because you get paid to review a game, you want to keep getting paid to review games. So you kind of got to feel like you have to put something positive out there. And I think that put a really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. I watched several YouTube videos after I finished playing the game, of course, And that was the big complaint from a lot of the videos that came out around that time. And so I I think it's polarizing for that reason. Plus, as I mentioned before, it does take a big shift in direction from the other two games. One of the obvious ones is um, the setting. Yeah. The setting is not in Rapture like the other two games, but in a community in the sky called Columbia. You don't have the big daddies or the little sisters like you did in the first two games, which if you look at any cover or see any gameplay of those games, those are the two like most iconic figures of the Bioshock series. And you don't have that in the third game. So I think for that reason, 
it was probably a bit polarizing and off-putting too. And I'm sure there are probably other reasons that you may know of that I don't. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the review hype cycle. And I've joked about this before where it's like a game will come out and get really hyped. And then a month later, people will start writing think pieces, quote unquote, about, oh, this game isn't really that good. It's flawed and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, who wrote a 10 out of 10 review for it? You know what I mean? Like, yep. So I wonder if this is an example of when that was kind of starting to become a cliche. You know, we'll get to like what the quote unquote final boss was. And I do remember watching like videos and listening to podcasts where people were like, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, did they (laughs) really not stick the landing this badly? But we'll get to that. I don't want to spoil anything just yet. And speaking of that, I think we should roll into uh, Story in 60 Seconds. Story in 60 Seconds. It's the year 1912. You are Booker DeWitt, an emotionally scarred private investigator who is down on his luck. Faced with a mountain of gambling debts, you're solicited to travel to a utopian community called Columbia to seek out a young lady named Elizabeth and bring her home. Sounds easy enough, right? Well, you'd be wrong. After entering Columbia, it isn't long before you realize things aren't as they appear. This beautiful and majestic wonderland is filled with devious secrets, and as an outsider with a different perspective, you aren't greeted so warmly by its populace. The powers that be are out to eliminate you as you navigate the cobblestone and skies of this floating city. You must use your fists, wits, new abilities, and any weapons you find along the way to rescue the girl and return home. Who and of what significance is this Elizabeth? And what trials and other mysteries await you in the clouds? Woohoo! All right. Yeah, one thing it does have in common with the other Bioshock games is that it kind of hooks you right in the beginning, right? Absolutely. Uh, Very similar kind of opening. You're in this boat and you get rowed up to a lighthouse by these two odd people. And yeah, you're instructed to get the girl and wipe away your debts. It's like the inverse of the original Bioshock. Instead of going you go up. And, uh, you know, that was intentional. Again, listening to interviews with Ken Levine, they were just like, we don't want to do the underwater thing again. So what's the kind of obvious alternative is cities in the skies. And they did research on the kind of science fiction of the era had a lot to do with airships and floating buildings and floating cities. And it was just part of the zeitgeist of the time. So they figured that would be a good direction to go in. And then as far as the aesthetic, they were talking about how early development of the game was kind of closed in and the clouds and the weather played kind of a much bigger role in like guiding you environmentally. But then they decided to make it like, no, we're up in the sky, like have it be wide open and you're going to fly, like make it more the opposite of the kind of claustrophobia of the earlier games. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think about it in that way, you know, the the openness of it as opposed to being in Rapture. But, you know, I think it's a smart move. I mean, you already had two games in Rapture. I just can't imagine a third really nailing it like the first two, you know? 
Yeah. And it's funny because I think retroactively people appreciate Bioshock 2 a lot more. Again, check out our episode on that. But watching these interviews with Ken Levine and Irrational Games because they didn't make Bioshock 2, they they will not acknowledge its existence in any of these old interviews. (laughs) They just only refer to Bioshock 1 that they made and they don't even talk about Bioshock 2 in any way. It's funny. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at with the development story. And uh, I think we're pretty good to get into the gameplay or unless you want to elaborate more on the story and the characters. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I mean, um, I think we can talk about the backstory and what's going on here. I mentioned Booker DeWitt and the story in 60 Seconds in Elizabeth. Booker is this private eye who is approached by these two characters who we find out their names and what they are later. But he's sent to retrieve this girl Elizabeth from the city. So you're thinking, okay, you're just going to the city up in the clouds. You're just going to show along, find this person and bring her home. Well, everything's going your way until by quote-unquote chance (laughs) (laughs) right you win this drawing and these two kids are brought up on stage one is african-american and i think the other one is irish Hmm. and you're given a baseball to throw at them that is your reward and so you kind of start seeing what the city's really like and um this kind of crazy theme that goes throughout the city too of uh it's called nativism What that means is that the people who were originally there are, quote unquote, the founders, and you're going back and elevating those people. You see statues of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin, and how they respect these founders, and they have them in their culture. But then, at one point, you see a statue... Of John Wilkes Booth. Of the great John Wilkes Booth. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, at that point, I think I was taking pictures of it, put it on PS4 shared. I was like, oh, shit, this just got grimy. You don't see the Abraham Lincoln animatrons or machinery in the city. Columbia, as it's called, is a very whitewashed utopia. Yeah, Um, there you go. Yeah, and so um, it's kind of disturbing as you get into it. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering how this would play, playing it 10 years later, because I remember the baseball scene, and the whole thing is they don't actually say what this couple did, but it's just thickly implied that it's simply because they're an interracial couple that they're Mm -hmm. being put up there to have baseballs thrown at them. So. I mean, let's just face it, political, whatever you want to call it, wokeness or basedness or whatever. There's a lot of... The climate's very politically charged. Right. right Everything is us versus them. Everything is purity tests or whatever the opposite of that is. Um, Mm -hmm. So I found it interesting that they put out those what could be considered controversial themes, but it didn't feel like super on the nose or like made me roll my eyes. There might have been a few times. No. In general, I think it was... Not handled super deeply. There were some racial slurs used in the game, but mm-hmm. only against Asian people. So that gives you a hint on uh, kind of where they were willing to go, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I was playing this for the first time. I still had the feeling of, oh, shit. You know, yeah. when it broke, I was like, <laughs> oh, man. 
this is going to be pretty heavy, which it is, you know, and, and rightfully so for good reason. I mean, you know, that's the message that they wanted to convey with this game and it works with the other games and in Rapture, you know, the big topic was objectivism. Yeah. But um, with this game, you know, they're tackling another theme, nativism, which is ironic in the fact that the people that came from overseas are not the natives. Right. Exactly. But yet they think they are. They call themselves the founders. Right. And they're led by a self-proclaimed prophet named Zachary Comstock. Right. He plays a very, very important role in this game. And no spoilers, but you do have a meetup with him at some point, which is very, very interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about. Yep. And then one of the other main characters is Daisy Fitzroy. She's an African-American lady who is leading the charge against the founders. And she leads a group called the Vox. Right. Vox Populi. Yep. Which is basically like the uh, rebels in Star Wars. Yeah, kind of. To me, they're more like the anarcho-communists. I've read up on this. I, I think the history of early communism is very fascinating. And where the first Bioshock is inspired by Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy. And the original, I would say, is like the capitalism versus communism idea. This one mm-hmm. is kind of, because it's set so far earlier, I think it's interesting that they're called anarchists a few times. It has definitely like the shades of anarcho-communism, like Emma Goldman type people from the turn of the century. They didn't take power. The the Bolsheviks did. So it's an interesting niche historical topic that on second playthrough, since I've learned more about this era, was able to appreciate a little more. So that's kind of one thing that in this game, I don't think is executed as well as the original game because there's not like one thing that the whole story hangs its hat on, if that makes sense. Because with Bioshock 1, it was Ayn Rand objectivism, like what would happen if this took over. But with this one, it's more vague, if that makes sense. It's more Americana. It's more Manifest Destiny. It's some Mm -hmm. Christian Christian nationalism. All that stuff kind of blended together with also this kind of anarcho-communist uprising, a people's revolution kind of thing, which now that I'm saying it, like it is a lot of stuff going on, but it's different. And I prefer the Bioshock, the original way, but Mm -hmm. I do appreciate that they kind of blended these factions in the way that they did with a historical context to it, even if it's kind of fantastical and not like super, you know, it's a... It's definitely stylized and I would say hyper stylized, but that's where all of this came from. So very interesting. Yeah. And one more thing that I did want to say about the story before we move on to gameplay is that like the previous Bioshock entries, much of the story is gathered through items in the game. You've got the Voxophone and the Kinetoscopes in this game, too, which is something that I really, really liked about the first two games. And I'm glad that they included it in this one as well. Yeah, same here. And they also improved something about the Voxophones where whatever they were called in the first game, I forget. Yeah, I can't remember. Your button was the same button as picking stuff up. 
So you would be trying to pick stuff up and you're playing your voxophone or you stopped it when you didn't mean to. In this game, and I know both of us played it on the PS4, you pick up the voxophone and then you hit down on the D-pad, which that's the only thing that button is used for, is to play the voxophone you just picked up. So I really appreciate that improvement that they made there. Yeah. Although still, when you pick up a voxophone, you have to stand still and just listen to it. Because if you walk around, Elizabeth will start talking to you and or you'll hear some kind of announcement over some loudspeaker or something and it will disrupt listening to that particular thing. I thought they were, again, well written and pretty rich in this game as well. I think they're up to par with the ones in the previous games. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and give a lot of good context. All right. So do you want to get into gameplay? Yeah, it sounds like we're already kind of getting there. Um, This is a first-person shooter, and if you've played the previous games, it's similar in a way where you have a firearm weapon in your right hand and a kind of superpower in your left hand, which in this (laughs) game is called uh, Vigors. Vigors, yep. Yeah, in previous, they were called Plasmids or Plasmas, but this one, they're called Vigors, and they're powered by salts, which is instead of Eve. Right. So that's basically (laughs) your mana for those powers and you can cycle through them and they all do slightly different things, but they pretty much have a A attack and a B attack or a primary and a secondary. A lot of times it's setting traps, which is pretty cool because in the previous games, the traps were a different thing. I think I'm getting confused between one and two, but the traps in two, I know came from your weapons. So interesting change of pace there. And then with the weapons, you can only have two weapons at a time, which I thought was interesting. Can't particularly remember how it was in the previous games, but that... I think it was like a rolling stick selection of your weapons. I think you could hold them all at the same time. Yeah. It was like kind of a thumbstick menu, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So interesting in this game, you can only use two. So that leads to... A little bit of resource management, but we'll get into uh, (laughs) with the Elizabeth mechanics. That isn't much of an issue. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, vigors and weapons provide basically what the gameplay hinges on and the combat, basically, which Mm -hmm. is using those vigors to weaken or incapacitate or stun your enemies. And there's a melee attack, which you have this claw hook it's a cool part of the game because it's, I guess, permanently attached to you and that's your melee weapon. And it's Mm -hmm. also the means by which you fly through the air on these rails in the lore. It's explained that the rails were created to move supplies from one part of the city to the other. And you will see these like train car looking things on them. And sometimes they are obstructions that you have to move, but then it's explained that people just eventually realized they could travel around on these rails Mm -hmm. and uh that's a pretty cool what was your take on the combat in general because i don't know i had a smoother time with this game with the combat and i think it's a little bit more finely tuned than the previous games yeah i mean i would agree a lot of the reviews that i even watched said even people that didn't like the game said well the gameplay is great the shooting yeah. mechanics are great if you're just playing this as a first-person shooter and you don't care about the story. So, yeah, I thought it was great. I did like the addition of the, the skyhook. I thought that was really cool. And you could do attacks off of that as well, which were awesome. Yep. I like the melee attack. It had some different animations to it as well. Reminded me a little bit of Doom, which we played, you know, some yeah. gruesome. And I'm all for uh, gore when it comes to games like this. So it was a lot of fun. 
As far as the weapons go, I did feel like they were a bit easier to control. Only being able to hold two weapons, though, I feel like I basically just leaned on two weapons the entire time. You know, I picked the ones that I liked the most. I always love playing with shotguns. Every game I play, I'm like, oh, where's the shotgun? You yeah. know, <laughs> like the other games, you could do weapon upgrades, but I would mainly upgrade the weapons that I use the most. I'm with you. And just to cut in here, I think that goes more to uh, the game's pretty short. And I would say if you want to experience the upgraded versions of every weapon, you would have to play the game multiple times because the upgrade path gets very expensive, especially if you're trying to upgrade your vigors as well. So it would take multiple playthroughs to really experience the maxed out versions of any of these guns. And uh, it's pretty cool because what they did was... You have like your stock weapons, but then you also have the Vox Populi versions of every weapon, which are kind of different. Like the machine gun isn't a machine gun. It's like a three burst rifle that's a little different and has a different sight on it. So I like that they did that. They did kind of just reskin the weapons they already had, but that adds to the variety of what you can do. And I kind of fell into doing the same thing. The thing I tweeted uh, yesterday, which was (laughs) using shock jockey, a fully upgraded shock jockey. You just shoot it and it shocks everybody in the area because it chains them together. And then it stuns them for a very long time. And then it only takes one shot from the hand cannon to take them out and their heads explode. So it's very satisfying to to just take a whole group And stun them and then just pop them one by one. So that's that's kind of what I got not stuck with, but I did enjoy. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's kind of the groove I fell into. But I experimented with the other ones, the fire one, the crows one. Each one has its own little perks and everything, but most of them are just kind of like a stun or damage attack and then a trap. There is some more interesting ones later on, like the water one where you can actually pull enemies toward you or there's one where you can launch them in the air and stuff. The bucking bronco. Yeah, yeah. Undertow, I think, is the one you pull them towards you. And then there was yep. a, there's a charge as well. Yeah, I didn't even get that one in this playthrough, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, all that to say, this gameplay is awesome. It's pretty deep, and I appreciate that because... I think nowadays, this may be a hot take, but there's a lot of games that just wish they were movies. And there's a lot of games that are simply third-person, over-the-shoulder action games. Sony is known for this. People call it the Sony template or whatever they call it, is that all Sony's games are the same and they're all third-person, over-the-shoulder action games. For whatever that's worth, I would say that with Bioshock Infinite, The gameplay here is good, and it's not like super deep and technical. It's not like some Counter-Strike Pro League (laughs) thing. But uh, I found myself just really enjoying the combat, experimenting to a certain extent with the different vigors, the different guns. And yeah, the very expensive upgrade system (laughs) that warrants multiple playthroughs. I thought it was really all really well done. Yeah, I agree. And something that's funny, watching some YouTube videos, I watched a lot this time because I wanted to kind of get a a more of a historical perspective as far as what was polarizing about this game, because I, you know, didn't know going into it. I just jumped in and played it. But one of the things people were talking about were 
oh, well, you'll just use this figure. This is the one that you'll lean on. Mm. But every video, it was a different figure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know what that's I mean? so funny. Yeah, that's what was hilarious about it. They're like, you're going to lean on this. Or these are going to be the two weapons that you primarily use. And I'm like, mm, no, I use two different ones and I leaned on this figure. I think you do find yourself leaning on certain things. Yeah. Because like you said, it gets so expensive to upgrade later that you're trying to save your money and you're upgrading the things that you use the most. But I think it gives you like a really nice choice of different figures to use. Now, I will say that a lot of them are very similar to the ones that were in Bioshock. They're just named differently. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. So they are very much the same, but there are a few that are different. I think in Bioshock, it was called Ignite. And in this one, it's called Devil's Kiss, yep. which I like because it gives it that snake oil feel. You know what I mean? Yeah, a good point. <laughs> yeah, I love the names and stuff. Bucking Bronco, Devil's Kiss, Shock <laughs> Jockey. Yeah, it's uh, really, really cool and uh, something that I really appreciate about it. But I did lean more on Devil's Kiss and Possession. Oh, I like possession, possession a lot. is rad too. Yeah, because we should explain that it'll allow you to take over machines and people to your side for a temporary amount of time. And I want to mention there's a upgrade system to your character. I think it's called elixirs, where yes. you pick up an elixir and you can choose to upgrade either your shield, which regenerates. It's like the halo shield, your health bar or your salt bar. Yeah. So what I did, <laughs> because I was playing on easy and I was playing the game and finding it to be pretty easy, like I'm not the great, I died a few times, but I found it to be somewhat easy. I put all of the elixirs I got into the salt bar. So I had a tiny shield bar, a tiny health bar, and I was just spamming the vigors the whole game because I had so much room. So like one of the cool things you could do with possession is just possess like half the battlefield and just watch them fight it out. Again, this is like this like kind of immersive gameplay that you can get when you have these kind of options. And again, that that's a goal of Ken Levine stated by him that he wants everybody to have kind of a different experience with a Bioshock game. So it's kind of funny, mm -hmm. your anecdote about the YouTube videos saying you're going to stick with this <laughs> one. It's like, well, maybe you did, but... Uh, right. I was into these other two. So that's very interesting. Yeah. The possession was cool. I mean, because you had that in earlier games, too. You always try to possess the big daddies, you know, and just let them wreak havoc. Yeah. Wasn't it called mind control or something like that? Something like that. I, I can't really remember. Yeah. But you do kind of the same thing in this game. There's some bigs. There's two kinds. There's one that's sort of like a big day that's more like um. Uh, I don't want to say an android, but sort of like RoboCop. Yeah. It has the mechanical body, but the uh, head of a human being. It's like a Disney animatronic, right? Weren't those called Patriots, I think? Yeah, there's those too. Yeah. But there's the other ones too that are sort of like the big daddies or like kind of the heavies. Oh, the handyman? Is that what you're talking yes, about? Yes, the handyman. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the Patriots as well are these just big animatrons. You feel like you're at Showbiz Pizza or Chuck E. Cheese or some shit. They're hard to take out. They're not hard to get away from or to attack, but I think it takes like four or five rocket launchers to yeah. <laughs> take one out. It's crazy. 
Well, they have a weak spot in the back, though, the gears in the back. So if you can get them yes. turned around, you can blast away. And they spew these quotes that are really funny, like, oh, yeah, you will funny. reap what you sow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a good point, because I did want to talk about this. In Bioshock, the original, it's like, all you can think about is Big Daddies. There were other sub-bosses and light bosses, and there were more of those in Bioshock 2. But in this mm-hmm. game, there is quite a bit more variety. There's the crow dude. They're just called crows. And then there's firemen who obviously shoot fire at you. Yeah. Um, and I'm probably forgetting a few. So I think they were trying to mix it up. And mm-hmm. whereas you fight dozens of big daddies throughout the first two Bioshock games, there's only like three or four handymen. And then there's a bunch of these other types of enemies, which I actually liked. Elizabeth calls them out to you like a fireman's coming, you know, so I like that a lot. Again, it's not better. It's just different. As much as I like the Big Daddy, I like that in this game there was something different and different levels of light and heavy and super bosses that will wreck you and then other ones that are more manageable. I like that. Yeah. Since we're talking about abilities, should we talk about Elizabeth for a bit and her ability to tear? Yeah, definitely. Um, so on the battlefields, like it's funny, there's an old joke about Mass Effect where I think I saw a comic of it one time where they're walking through an area and somebody says, uh oh, there's enemies near. And they say, how do you know? And he says, look, strategic cover (laughs) so uh when you see these tears uh elizabeth has this ability to control space time and she can bring things in from 
the multiverse, let's say, that will help you. Mm -hmm. So visually, it looks like gray static, but it is a representation of something like a turret or some cover or even items and weapons. Yeah. So that is helpful. And then the other thing that kind of (laughs) maybe on harder difficulties, this is more strategic But one of the reasons you can just pick one gun and just go with it is because Elizabeth throws you salts and ammo and health and even money when you're when you're not in combat, like just kind of randomly. But I feel like however they programmed it, whatever algorithm they're running, it's designed to give you stuff that you need, but not to just give it to you when you need it. So If you're running low on salt and ammo and life, you might get something, but you're still pretty boned. But if you're spamming your salts and then start spamming your gun, you might get ammo before you get salt. So it's not like super predictable. Mm -hmm. But I did find like playing on easy difficulty, it was just like bumper bowling or training wheels. Like (laughs) I'm really not going to run out of anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not a game like Resident Evil 2. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) And I did want to make one note about the Elizabeth giving you stuff thing is that it does in certain parts of the story create a little bit of dissonance because your relationship with Elizabeth throughout the game has its ups and downs, let's say. And there's some really rocky parts of the game where she like hates you, but then she'll be like, hey, Booker, I found some money here. (laughs) You know what I mean? She'll be like, (laughs) Booker, you're a guy thug and i hate you like stay away from me and then in the, ne- the next here's some health stay exactly. alive exactly <laughs> exactly uh same with the lock picking thing it's like i hate you i hate yeah. you too hey can you pick this lock piece of cake you know what i mean like so that to me like a, a conflict between like the tone of those little grow gameplay elements and like the overall tone of the story sometimes like it's not a game breaker not a deal breaker just something i noticed playing through it all of those are very canned so the only tone to them is friendly so when you're in a a less friendly situation it comes off as kind of odd yeah well you mentioned like the lock picking aspect of the game and much like the previous Bioshock games, there are vending machines that sell similar things. In the previous games, there were these puzzle mechanics. If you remember that, like you could get cheaper items and things like that, but those have kind of disappeared from this game. And from what I can tell, you can no longer get discounts or anything like that from the machines or try to open safes and things like that through a puzzle game. You just had to find lock picking devices. And I think for most of the safes, it takes like five of those for her to be able to open a safe. Yeah. The puzzles for the previous games, I think they weren't very popular. In the first game, it was pipe dream, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Right. And then again, in the second game, it was that like needle on a meter going back and forth. But again, Irrational doesn't acknowledge that that game exists. So they were probably like, oh, people didn't like this pipe dream thing. Let's just take the puzzles out. I think that's what happened. I think that was smart. (laughs) I agree. I think it was just a speed bump in both games. Um, Right. So I enjoyed that. And then the lock picking thing, it was funny because you can always tell when you're going the right way for a story mission because you don't need to use any lock picks. It says hairpin lock, which means uh-huh. uh, 
Elizabeth can automatically pick it without any consumables. So mm-hmm. that was always interesting. Like, oh, yeah, okay, this is where I'm supposed to go because it's a hairpin lock. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of direction, one of the nice things on this game was the, um, I can't remember which directional button you would push, but it would show you the path that you needed yeah. to go if you got turned around. I thought that was awesome. I used it a lot. Yeah, it's up on the D-pad, and I use it a lot too. And I think this is one of the ones that is, again, kind of polarizing, but I'm thinking about it. There was a similar thing in the first two games where it was an arrow at the top of the screen. But I think people still will use this as ammo when they say that this game was kind of dumbed down from the original games. Uh, I'm like, fuck yes. Yeah, no, I thought it was useful. (laughs) There was a couple sequences where I was like spamming it because it doesn't go very far. So where the hell am I? Where am I supposed to go? So I did use it quite a bit. There was another aspect, and it's kind of a thing you find throughout the game called gear. There are four gear slots. And each one of them is like a permanent buff, but you can switch them out and you collect these throughout the game. To me, Rich, this wasn't a huge part of the game. Yeah, I agree. There was one I liked a lot, which is when somebody melee attacks you, they get shocked. I don't have proof of this, but I think the attributes of shock jockey, like to whatever extent you upgraded it, goes along with that. So, for Mm -hmm. example, if I upgraded shock jockey to make the shock last longer... I think it corresponded to that. Like if somebody melee attacked me, they get shocked in the same exact way as if I had hit them with shock jockey. So that was one I did like a lot. But a lot of the other ones were just like, I don't know, your healing items work better or stuff like that. And I'm, yeah. I don't know if that is one, but that's just an example of what kind of things they do. It seemed like there were so many of them and a lot of them were just throwaways. Like yeah. I, I thought like as I progressed through the game, maybe they would get better but I didn't have that feeling. There were some that I'd gotten at the very beginning of the game that I used throughout the entire game. Same here. I didn't switch them, I don't think, at all. There was one, <laughs> it's funny because there was one that was like auto turrets and other enemies don't notice you as quickly. And it's like, yeah. that's freaking useless. I just run up to those bitches and zap them. Like, I don't <laughs> need them to not notice me. What is this, a stealth game? <laughs> yeah, no way. <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, there were a few side quests in this game as well. I would say a handful, maybe, at most. There was one where you had to retrieve a piece of parchment or something like that, and you could open up a secret vault. I did that one. There was another one where you were supposed to find a shop in one of the cities, which I was never able to find. Usually that's something if I couldn't find, I would probably go look up. But I don't think I mentioned this before. I finished this game in one sitting. God, my yeah. wife was so pissed at me for that day <laughs> because they were painting that day. And I was down there playing Bioshock for like oh, eight man. hours. That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, so uh so yeah the side missions um i don't want to say they felt tacked on but i just felt like there weren't enough of them i felt like there could have been a lot more and i still wouldn't have felt like the game was padded out you know what i mean yeah definitely and i'm glad to hear a little bit about these because i didn't do any of them uh and i don't remember if i did any of them in my first playthrough back in the day but i encountered one where it's like find the keys to this thing and you know 
that's how they introduced the side quest. And I was like, nope, don't care. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to finish this game before we record. Uh, not going for that. So I'm glad to hear that there was some interesting stuff there. So that might be worthwhile on a replay. Yeah, it was mainly you would get more elixirs. You know, it opened like a bigger vault that would have oh, okay. like an elixir or something like that in it. Or you could get one of the vigors at an earlier time. You know, most of the vigors I think you could pick up later in the game anyway at certain spots. You just kind of ran into them. Nice. Um, trying to think if there's anything in gameplay that we missed. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, there is. Something that would seem like a simple first-person shooter has a quite a bit going on for it. But I think what's the most impressive about the game and what we hit on quite a bit is that you can play it any way you want. It's yeah. very diverse in the way that you can approach the game. And maybe that would allow for multiple playthroughs if anyone was interested in playing it again. I don't know from the first time to this time if you changed up the way you played or not. Maybe you tried some different things in this playthrough that you didn't when you originally played it. Yeah, I don't remember, but I'm sure I did. Yeah. All right. So uh, why don't we go into the graphics and environment, Sean? Yeah, definitely. So as you noted, this takes place in 1912. And again, in an interview I was watching with Ken Levine, he was talking about how they transitioned from into the ocean to going to some kind of in the sky, but still claustrophobic, <laughs> still dark, still with the same color palette of the original Bioshock. And he relayed this story of he went for a run and he noticed <laughs> the way the light was playing off of somebody's mailbox on this beautiful sunny day that he was out for a run. So he took out his phone, took some pictures of it, slept on it and then when he went to the office the next day he said what this game is going to be is the ideal fourth of july celebration <laughs> so that was like their eureka moment that's the direction they're going in and that's kind of what the game looks like right it's yeah. uh definitely turn of the century americana at least in the beginning, before mm -hmm. things get uh, <laughs> things get dirty and violent and stuff, <laughs> the stars and stripes are everywhere. The yep. flowing gowns, and we should mention the word Columbia is this kind of mythology. It's a female fantasy character. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Like the female personification of the United States, like Uncle Sam. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what Columbia is. And if you do a little bit of a, a dive on artwork of her and that kind of stuff, you will see where a lot of the art direction came from in this game. Or even just think of like, I'm glad you mentioned Uncle Sam because I wasn't even thinking of that. The I want you to join yep. poster. It's very iconic is definitely in that vein. And then graphically, you know, it's a PS3, Xbox 360 generation game. But you and I both played the upgraded PS4 version. I think it's called the Ultimate Edition, but it was part of the uh, trilogy remaster that came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, on that version, the graphics are super sharp, but I think the character models fall more into the uncanny valley. <laughs> <laughs> that would be probably my one knock against the game. And I do remember... Again, we talk about like how this game got a lot of acclaim, but then people started to notice things about it. One of the things people started to call out after the game came out was that there's not a lot going on in a lot of the environments compared to the original Bioshock and other open world games at the time. 
I remember a lot of reviews were saying it seems like an empty like Disney World where you're just kind of walking through and the NPCs are very static and they do have like chatter. Uh, some mm-hmm. of it's pretty interesting. But there was a criticism that the world was more empty. And I think that has a little bit to do with like when you play the original Bioshock, it's already a fallen world. It's a fallen city. But when you get to Columbia, it's in its prime. It's in its heyday. Everything is meant to look idealistic and beautiful. Not sure how I feel about this criticism, especially on a replay. I didn't think like, oh, this is boring and drab, like, or there's not a lot going on. I just felt like this is a first person shooter. It's not Skyrim. You know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't feel that way at all. There is a bit of a lack of NPCs in certain places, but I kind of attribute that to the cops and people are chasing you. <laughs> yeah. You're loose in this city causing chaos. If you're a citizen of the city, what are you going to do? You're going to go inside, right? You're going to hide. Okay. You know, some crazy person's on the loose, right? So I like this. So you're adding a little canon of your own to the whole thing. <laughs> sure. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I felt with this game. I don't see that at all. I think that's a bit nitpicky, you know? Yeah. I don't think you need that sort of interactions with NPCs all the time. And there's one scene where you fall from the sky and you land on a beach, which is strange in itself. And you do have a lot of interaction with people in that area, which, you know, maybe the message hasn't gotten down to this little piece of paradise yet. So, again, very nitpicky. I don't think that that was a problem for me or anything that I even thought about. One of the things I wanted to mention, too, about the look of the game, it has this post-industrial revolution look to it, too, right? With the uh, the steampunk dynamics of the game, which is very powerful, especially when you get to the uh, bird, which is one of the coolest looking things in the game. Yeah, the songbird is awesome. <sighs> and yeah, you're right. There's like steampunk, but it's not overdone, which I like. Because steampunk is a thing that it's like cyberpunk. There's varying degrees of it. And they could have went ham with the steampunk, but they kept it to a minimum. And I think that is to the game's credit. Yeah, it's mainly in the weapons. Um, you yep, know, where that's the steampunk what I was is. thinking. Yeah, yeah, that really doesn't kind of fit with the time. And we have to remember, just to kind of give everyone listening an idea of the game setting, this is 1912. The first Bioshock was 1960, and then Bioshock 2 took place eight years later, so around 1968 or 69. So it kind of gives you a little bit of context as far as timeline and like how these games fall. Yep. But I'm sure our final thoughts will be talking all about timeline. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, that plays an important role.
broken hearted She used to be my own I tried to keep from crying My heart felt just like lead She was all I had to live for I wish that it was me instead Went down to St. James Infirmary All right, I think we pretty much covered the graphics and environments. I think we should talk about music and sounds now. Before we start talking about the music, maybe we should talk a little bit about the voice acting in this game. I thought it was fantastic. I don't know how you felt about it, Sean. Yeah, the voice acting in this game is very famous because it was Troy Baker who at the time was voicing everything. He's still active, still very famous. And then Elizabeth was played by Courtney Draper. Jennifer Hale's in this. There's a lot of other famous voice actors and some lesser known ones. I do appreciate the voice acting and the one making of video that I watched has a long segment on how they achieved the voice acting. And there's this one scene in particular where (laughs) they're trying to get Courtney Draper into a certain mental state. So I saw that. That was rough. Ken Levine and Troy Baker are just yelling at her to make her upset. I've seen it multiple times and it's it's very interesting and hard to watch and uncomfortable at the same time, but it's interesting to see people at that level, like kind of exploring their craft. You know what I mean? Dude, a little off topic, but have you ever watched the making of The Shining and how oh, yeah. Stanley Kubrick <laughs> yeah, was course. to Shelley Duvall? Yeah, of Holy course. shit. But yeah. I think some of that might have been purposeful. I think he didn't really like her. But yeah. I think with the Levine thing, they're just really trying to get the best out of the acting there. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry. It just popped in my head. I had to mention it. No, that's fine. And I actually want to tie it into the... Uh the movie discussion we were having earlier and I'm not criticizing the voice acting. I actually, I agree with you. It was very, very well done. And it's maybe because I'm playing this game again. This is my second or third time playing through the game. I'm not sure. And then having watched tons and tons of YouTube stuff about this, the voice acting to me is just a touch melodramatic And what it reminds me of is the early movies in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Some of them were criticized for being what's called stagey, which means it looks like it's just a play that somebody put a camera in front of, which in the early days of film, that's what they did because they didn't know what movies were, you know, such a new technology. And I got that kind of feeling that the voice acting was a bit stagey, just a hair too melodramatic. But that is a real, real nitpick. And I think it's just a case of overexposure in my case. But sounds like you were into it. And I think most people are. This is a very famous voice interaction between Troy Baker and Courtney Draper as these characters. Yeah, I kind of had the sense that it kind of fit with the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. A little bit of over-dramatization was just fitting of early 1900s. So that's how I took it. But definitely there are parts that are, like you said, staged. And again, I believe Ken Levine again voiced the vending machines. (laughs) Where (laughs) in the first game it was... thank God. Yeah, of course. That's his (laughs) his, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock cameo 
Yeah, in the first game, it was the circus of value. And in this game, I only caught it a couple times, but in one of the vending machines says, that's a woman who understands value. So I guess his thing <laughs> is saying the word value in that way. So I, I like that little Easter egg. And also, while we're talking about graphics and sound, that was one thing that kind of surprised me is how much like the original Bioshock this game actually is. I remember mm. the first time playing it, it felt like a completely different thing. But replaying it now, I realized like a lot of the same sound effects are used. A lot of the same graphical interfaces yep. are used, like menus. Like a lot of it makes me feel like I'm playing a Bioshock game. And I'm, oh, yeah. Of course, that was done on purpose. It was just like I didn't realize how much it was that way until replaying it kind of in the same proximity as replaying the other games. So mm -hmm. that was interesting to me. Well, let's move on and talk about the music a little bit. Very interesting choice here. Yeah. So we have music that kind of goes along with the theme and music that was a sign of the times. So we have some of the older ballads and then some licensed music as well that's used in some kind of nutty ways. But I really enjoyed it oddly enough. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you felt about it, but, um, you know, there's this barbershop quartet that pops up at one time. They do God Only Knows by the Beach Boys from Pet Sounds, which is pretty crazy, you know, to hear it that way. There's quite a few other songs that appear, uh, Tainted Love, Shiny Happy People, Everybody Wants to Rule the World is another one. Yeah. And they're sung in that way, that more kind of barbershop quartet or kind of old style like you would have heard in Rapture in the earlier Bioshock games. But there are two instances where you hear the songs Fortunate Son by Credence mm -hmm. and Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And this happens at a part where Elizabeth opens up a tear in time and the music kind of pipes through that tear. And I thought that was really, really cool. I really enjoyed that. I thought it was like a very neat addition to the game, you know? Absolutely. The anachronistic music is one of the big selling points. The first time I played this game, at least, I was working with my friend Tyler. I'm sure I've talked about him many times. He's a good friend of mine from back in New Jersey. And when I played Bioshock Infinite, both he and I were both very high on the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds at the time. So I said, dude, take this game, play the first 45 minutes. I need you to see something. <laughs> and he's like, what? What are you talking about? And I'm like, just do it. Because <laughs> that moment where they come down and they're singing that is so amazing. Yeah. And that one hit the hardest out of all the other ones. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's the most recognizable. Some of the other ones you have to kind of listen to for a bit because it's like a different tone. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, like yeah. when somebody remakes a song, sometimes they'll remake it exactly. And then other times they'll really change up the melody in it. But this one, uh, it really hit hard. Yeah. A lot of the music was similar to Bioshock 1, just like the creepy ragtime and jazz turn of the mm -hmm. century stuff yep. played for effect. That also works very well. And of course, there's a score. There's dramatic, symphonic movie score type of music in the game as well, which gets the job done. Yeah. Yeah. Sound design in general, including the music, is very good in this game. Yeah. I'd give this one a thumbs up. This made it past adequate. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Sean, so it's that time. We're at final thoughts. Let's talk a little bit about the final battle, the ending, and give our final thoughts on the game if we'd recommend it or not. Yeah, absolutely. So we made it this far without spoilers, but I'm definitely going to want to spoil everything in my final thoughts. So I just want to say here, like, if you made it this far, this game gets a recommendation from me. Definitely thumbs up. Turn off the show right now and go play it, then come back for our final thoughts. Cool. So yeah, let's talk about the final boss. So you make it to Comstock's barge, whatever it's called. It's a huge airship and the Vox Populi are attacking and you were able to find out that the songbird is controlled by Comstock with music and the cage, C-A-G-E, there's a moment where she says, it's not a word, it's music notes. So she plays it and it kind of tames the songbird and she says, can you help us this time? And again, this is where some people were underwhelmed by this whole thing. The final boss, quote unquote, is just horde mode, basically, where you have to defend the airship from waves of attackers. But there's a admittedly undercooked uh, mechanic where you can use the songbird by targeting something and then holding down the square button. But then there's an extremely long and I believe scripted cooldown of the songbird that you can't use it again for quite a long time and i think it's again i believe it's scripted i think it's based on when the zeppelins come <laughs> your songbird magically is available again kind of thing but uh yeah at the beginning of the fight you can definitely use it a little more freely and target like groups of enemies but again the way i was playing the game i liked getting in there and getting down and dirty and <laughs> shocking and shooting so I only use the songbird where I absolutely had to to take out the Zeppelins. Yeah, I hated the final battle in this game. Oh, okay. That was the only part where I had a problem with the game, and I just felt like it upped the difficulty way too much from where it was earlier in the game. Now, I know you say like Ken Levine wants people to play this in different ways. You know, he wants you to have your own experience. But for me, it made me wish that I would have put more into upgrading things like shock jockey that would have helped me take out multiple enemies at one time instead of the ones that I chose. I would have actually done like you did and used more of the elixirs to increase my salt because I wasn't getting a lot of abilities. I was mainly leaning more on weapons than I was on my abilities. So For me, I thought I was at quite a detriment when I got to the end of the game where it seems someone like you, you know, who was using shock jockey could just really control the crowd and have an easier path to the finish line. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just curious. Did you play on easy difficulty? No, I played on just standard. Okay, normal. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you might have had a tougher time because of that, too. Like, yeah, true. But it was quite a difference in like how hard the game was compared to how hard the ending was. It was, you know, very, very noticeable, which, you know, we see quite a lot in games. Yeah. And let's be real. There's a sequence at the end with the ghost of Lady Comstock that I do feel is a little bit padded because there's a noticeable difference in enemy types and enemy quantities at that point in the game and it's like hmm i wonder if they're padding this out a little bit making me run all over the place and fight a bunch of people 
that was one of the weaker points of the game for sure. But yeah, um, final battle was really interesting. We've talked about games that don't have final bosses. It's not something that has to be in every game for sure. It's just something that they tried something different and I don't think completely stuck the landing. But going into it this time and kind of knowing, I definitely remembered this whole thing. So I just tried to have fun with it. And if you just treat it as another arena fight within the game, it's fine, you know? Yeah. And that brings us to the ending and the real the real meat and potatoes of this game, <laughs> at least narrative-wise. <laughs> however many times I play this game and however many YouTube videos I watch, uh, I want to ask too, did you play the DLCs or no? I did not. Okay. I hear that that probably helps with the story a bit. Yeah, a little bit, but it also retcons certain things and makes it even more convoluted in other ways. Uh, so okay. I've played it before. I don't I don't think we should cover it here because you didn't play it and I didn't replay it yet. I'm actually going to go play those this weekend, but I do recommend them, but I don't think we should cover them here. However, um, where was I going with that when I asked it? Oh, just about the <laughs> the ending uh, where you find out that Elizabeth is just the master of the multiverse and your entire existence. Everything you did was predetermined to happen. And mm-hmm. that Booker is Comstock. And I want to say, I am not the kind of person who figures out plot things like when i'm watching a mystery movie i never know who did it my wife is very good at those things she can see a plot twist a mile away but i remember the first time i played this game about two hours into the game i said oh my guy is comstock that's going to be the twist (laughs) i remember figuring it out and then that ends up what happens and surprisingly to me replaying this this time The last thing that happens is many versions of Elizabeth appear because they're all from different timelines, I guess. Multiverses, yeah. Yeah, and they drown you, and then the credits roll. And I didn't remember it that way. I thought there was more to it, but the whole point of the story is that Booker slash Comstock must die to change anything. Mm -hmm. And then it makes you wonder, does it change anything? Because the whole point that the Lutesses drill into you the entire game is that you can't change anything (laughs) like everything is predetermined so that's definitely one of the bigger themes of the game and as I'm rambling incoherently I'm wondering if you can (laughs) rescue me and talk a little bit about your takes on the ending no I think you nailed it like you said I mean there's these different multiverses and wrinkles in time You know, the only way to change anything, like you said, is to take out Comstock in each timeline. So there's more than one lighthouse. There's multiple lighthouses. So it makes you believe that this is also the same thing that was going on later in the Bioshock and Bioshock 2 universes, right? Mm -hmm. There's even one point in the game where you fall out of the sky and you fall into the water and you get a glimpse of Rapture, which yes. is not supposed to exist until 40 to 50 years later. So I just had the epiphany of, oh, this is why they call the game Bioshock Infinite. Right. Yeah. That's where the name comes from. And this clearly is going to be the last game in the series. There's not going to be another because this has basically exposed the whole idea with the multiverse 
yep. and the timeline, which is very interesting. Not the way I expected the game to end at all, but I was satisfied with it. I know a lot of people hate it, but, <laughs> you know, whatever. A lot of people's biggest gripe with this game is the story, but I wholeheartedly disagree. Yeah. Again, replaying this game 10 years later has been very valuable to me because I remember oh, the ending of that game, the final boss, quote unquote, sucked and the ending was a convoluted mess. But in general, I remember liking the game. But mm-hmm. man, my playthrough this time was just like all upside. Like I didn't dislike the ending. And again, there's a benefit to kind of knowing what's coming and just more paying attention and trying to absorb it in a better way rather than being just dumbfounded by what they're saying. And also the Easter egg of going to Rapture at the end was awesome. I think one of the more emotional moments in the game is where Elizabeth drowns the songbird in the ocean in Rapture. That really hits hard. Yeah. And then, you know, the ending itself is pretty dark, so... I enjoyed it more this time around, for sure. I guess we can roll into actual final thoughts, because that kind of segues pretty well as we have covered everything now. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of this series, just in general, and I liked this playthrough of Infinite way more than I thought I would. I couldn't remember my exact feelings of the first time I played this game. I just remembered liking it in general. But... I thought the gameplay is deep. The story is pretty cool. There were some things that didn't age well. Like I think Elizabeth's character model, especially amongst all the other character models are. Yeah, it's very cartoony. Yeah. And that was on purpose. Uh, They said they wanted her to be like a Disney princess. But yeah, to me now, looking at it now, it falls into kind of uncanny valley territory. But those are all like kind of minor things. I just. I had a blast with this game and I didn't beat it in yeah. one sitting, but I, I beat it in a few days and I woke up early to finish it this morning and I was able to blast my way through it. And I'm, I am going to go back and replay that DLC cause it's good. And for those who don't know, if you're interested or maybe you are rich, you play as Elizabeth in rapture and it's intact rapture before the fall. So it's an interesting <laughs> way to see that kind of stuff. So Um, And there's also an arena mode called Clash in the Clouds, which is, you know, if you're up for a challenge, I played like five minutes of it and it's like 15 waves per (laughs) session. So it's like, no, I'm not going to, I don't have another two hours to burn on this. But I remember getting into that at the time. So yeah, this game is really good. I, I was surprised. I think it fits well within the canon of Bioshock in general. And I know like, yeah, there's some time stuff and the multi-dimensional stuff gets messy no matter what franchise you're looking at. Reminds me a little bit of Metal Gear Solid. It's a snake eating its own tail, but I'm still into it. I still love it. I still love how much the director is up his own ass. Like it's fine. It's great. Yeah. I just recommend this. I saw that you and a bunch of other people refer to this game as an escort mission, but at least on the easy difficulty, Elizabeth is invincible. Was she that way in your playthrough too? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. okay. So yeah, in general, it's not an escort mission. I, and I wrote in the no, notes no. here, who is escorting who? Because in the end, Elizabeth is the master of the multiverse and 
she tells you what's up at the end of the game. And I, I found right. a lot of times she was leading the way. She's telling you what to do. She's supplying you with everything you need, picking locks for you, throwing money at you. She's like, in a way, you could kind of look at this in a critical way and say, is this how male gamers feel about women? <laughs> is that they should just be supplying you throwing with everything money at you us, need, yes. throwing money at you and just being at your beck and call? She really started throwing money at me when I put on that G-string ability. (laughs) Nice. But yeah, my thought about that was like, who is actually escorting who in this game? Yeah, I meant escort in just the plain sense, not an escort mission, but just the fact that you're going to rescue her and then you're escorting her out. Yeah, exactly. So sorry if I threw you off with that usage. No, not at all. And you're not. And I know what you mean by escort missions where you have to protect someone. Exactly. That goes along with it. Right. Yeah. So my final thoughts on the game. I've already mentioned I wasn't a fan of the final battle and the increased difficulty at the end. And I, you know, I played it on normal was tough. I mean, I probably died over 10 times trying to do that last mission which I wanted to pull my hair out because this was a one sitting thing for me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I want to finish this, you know, I've been playing this for eight hours today. Yeah. It was a little bit nerve wracking there at the end, but I will say this, I hate to admit this, but I wasn't really looking forward to playing this game. And I liked the first two games a lot, but my thought was, where are they going to go with this? Like, if I go back to Rapture, like, is it going to be the same rinse and repeat thing again? Because I had no idea that the story changed like it did and that you would be going to Columbia. I thought, oh, I'm just going to Rapture for a third time. And so that was one of the most refreshing things to me is that they changed up the story and they did something different with it, but they still managed to tie in that storyline. Yeah, I thought the gameplay was fantastic. I'm not really a fan, as you know, of first-person shooters, but I enjoyed this one quite a lot. I thought it was really well executed. I thought the weapons were cool. I thought the melee was really awesome. I really loved the skyhooks and moving throughout the city in that way. I do wish there would have been a few more side missions to the game, but it is what it is. I think it could have made the game a little bit longer, which I did feel like this game was a little on the short side. I know that's not usually a complaint. From us, it's not a complaint. (laughs) Yeah. But it says a lot, and it made me want to keep playing the game, right? You know, usually I start playing a game, and it'll be so long, I'll just be like, I'm just ready for this thing to end. It just seems so samey. But I didn't have that feeling in this game. The story was pretty good. I would have liked for it to be a little more meatier in the middle. I felt like there was a lot of back and forth. You go here, but you got to go back to here to find this or get to her. Or So I felt like it was sort of like that whole cliche of your princess is in another castle type feel at some points where I was just going back and forth areas and, you know, looking for certain things. You know, I really, really love this game. I thought it was so great. I don't understand people that have a problem with this game, that don't like this game. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it deserves all the high ratings that it got when it first came out. I think people were right about it, even though a lot of times we tend to be skeptical about reviews that are being paid for. I think that these reviews were correct. This is an amazing game and a fantastic addition to the Bioshock series. If I had to rank the three games, this would either be first or second. The second one at the end. 
Not saying the second one was a bad game, but I felt that this one covered an entirely different territory where it could have been a game or an idea on its own. And then the first Bioshock was just so riveting and like nothing that I had ever seen before. So yeah, I've really, really enjoyed playing the series with you over the past several years. It's, uh, it's been, uh, I don't want to call it a labor of love because there's no labor in it. It was just pure enjoyment and uh, I'm glad we got to wrap it up. Same here, man. That's awesome. All right. So as far as upcoming games are going, yours is the next one, right? That's right. The next game that we're going to play is uh, Luigi's Mansion on the GameCube. Usually we like to start with the first game when we can. Sometimes we opt to not do that if the first game's bad. But I've heard really great things about the first game as far as the atmosphere being a little more creepy than the later game. So I'm really excited to check this one out. I've never played a Luigi's Mansion game before, even though I own most of them, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Have you played any of these games before, Sean? A little bit. I'm actually kind of excited to revisit this game because my wife got all the way to the end of it and then couldn't beat the final boss. I tried to help her. We tried to do it and we couldn't put it away. So we uh, gave up and I'm looking forward to taking another crack at it, but also playing the whole game because this is the first time around my wife played it. Very cool. And uh, we've already decided on a game for the month after that. You want to tell everyone what that is? Yeah, that's going to be Urban Chaos Riot Response, which is a game developed by Rocksteady, which made all the really good Batman games like Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. So before they got into that, they made this wacky and out there first person shooter similar to the game we just talked about but this one is totally different it's nothing like bioshock but it's definitely an unconventional let's say first person shooter that i've played before but i've been dying to replay and i want you (laughs) despite that you're not into first person shooters again i think this will be one that you think is a lot of fun or at least i'm hoping so Yeah, I've watched some video on it, and I've owned it for a while as well. This is one of those games where everybody tells you, oh, you need to pick this one up for your PS2. This is, I'm not going to use the word hidden gem, but (laughs) a game that, you know, is not very well known on that system, but very good. And like I said, watch some video, and it looks fantastic. I can't wait to check it out.
And with that, we will wrap up another episode. Hey, why is my nose bleeding? Tune in next month as we put our ghost-busting skills to the test with Luigi's Mansion and follow that up with some enthusiastic police work with Urban Chaos Riot Response. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join our playthroughs, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame